0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Find us on Twitter at political underscore beats where you can join the conversation. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. We also uh, invite you to subscribe, of course, for new episodes. Get it right to you through iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in, or you can go right to nationalreview.com. Click there on the podcast tab, find all the fine NR podcasts, listen, share, enjoy leave reviews my tag team partner standing by he would not miss this part two for the world he's jeff blair jeff how are you
1: well actually i'm a little bit disaffected with our partnership scott i don't know i'm just not feeling the magic i i feel uh I know i've been pursuing a solo career i've been doing other podcasts uh, while you were uh, sitting around biding your time uh, you know you know what we can do maybe we can just dig up a bunch of outtakes for this one
0: Either that or you can start working in your own studio with your own producer and I'll work with my uh, studio and my producer and then we'll kind of get together at the end.
1: Listen, I'm going to be a pop star. I'm going to do Live Aid.
0: <laughs> as long as the brand name continues, the political beats name, that's the most important thing.
1: You got to protect the brand.
0: Find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. This is, in fact, part two of our Rolling Stones episode. In case you didn't hear part one, well, what's wrong? Go get it uh, right now in those places I mentioned earlier. But we are about to start part two with a brand new guest. He is editor-in-chief of National Journal, nationaljournal.com. Find him on Twitter at D.C. DeFour, D-U-F-O-U-R. He's Jeff DeFour. Jeff, how are you? gentlemen i've been waiting in the
2: hall i've been waiting on your call
0: (laughs) uh jeff here to talk about the stones with us as we pick up where we left off last time the end of the brian jones era and the uh, beginning of uh midway through the greatest winning streak in rock and roll history we'll get back to the music in just a moment first we meet jeff jeff the floor is yours please tell us first of all who you are where you have been and uh, how you got into the world of politics
2: sure um like a lot of people, I graduated with a political science degree and immediately started bartending with it. Uh, <laughs> about a year after that, I finally uh, got, uh, got motivated. I landed at National Journal the first time around, which at the time was really in the infancy of Internet publishing. Uh, I then spent a few years at the Hill newspaper, another few years at the Washington Examiner in its first iteration. Uh, I wrote columns in both of those papers. Then I took about a six-year hiatus from politics, actually, when I wrote mostly about bars and restaurants in the D.C. area. So that was sort of a fun diversion. Uh, and when that ran its course, I wound up back at N.J. Uh, as luck would have it, I started about a month before the Iowa caucuses in 2016. So I find <laughs> myself uh, reinvigorated about politics and about covering politics and 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 here I still am
0: uh again nationaljournal.com nationaljournal.com Jeff you're with us for part two of the Rolling Stones now uh, on part one both Jeff Blair and I were able to tell uh, people about our love for the Rolling Stones and how we sure. got into them we uh, give you an opportunity here before we start uh, getting into the music of this part two to tell us why you love the Rolling Stones how you found out about them and, and what what exactly you do love about them
2: my Stones appreciation is probably a little bit less linear and came a little slower than most. Uh, and for that, I blame none other than my dear mother who was a Stones hater from way back. Um, anytime a stone song came on the radio, I can remember her kind of making a face and changing the FM dial. Uh, she almost perfectly encapsulated that Beatles stones divide of people who grew up in the sixties. She never really caught to their brand of, of rock and roll sleaze, uh, she per- preferred the, 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 the buttoned up, uh, early Beatles. So going back to high school, it was, I was a huge classic rock fan, but it was pretty much hot rocks for me. And that was it in my collection. Um, and even that record, I think I, I didn't even own an original copy. I think I dubbed it from my uncle's vinyl copy, you know, when you would dub it onto the cassette, um, and I think I'm not even sure I owned sticky fingers uh, until late college or just after college. And that also coincided with my first stone show, which was 1997 at the then brand new FedEx field. Like a lot of things at FedEx field, it was not a good experience. Um, <laughs> it was cold. We were way up high, but they did play sister morphine on that tour. And I recognized it. I finally thought, okay, now I'm a fan. I'm one of the only people around me who knows what the hell this song is. Um, so anyway, I complete the collection not long thereafter. Fast forward almost 20 years, and I had been casually jamming with some other guys at a rehearsal space in Rockville every, uh, every week or so. One of these guys was in a Beatles band, still is, and asked us if we wanted to get an ad hoc band together to open for them. So, a few of us, what are we going to open for the Beatles with? well we'll open with some stone songs. so a few of us ended up doing about eight or nine stones tunes, and out of that, about five years ago, a, a band was born now known as the Dukes of Dartford. We named them after the train platform where Mick and Keith <laughs> met one another uh-huh um, and in fact, the guy who plays uh, Keith to my Mick named Jim Neal. He works in Senate leadership, and our female vocalist Karen Weiss works for the Library of Congress. So we've got a lot of uh, political representation. in the, she's in is the, rank she the one.
1: Is she, she's the one who does the backing vocals on "Give Me Shelter," I assume. Oh yes, and like, <laughs> you know, like "Let It Loose." All yep. right, yeah,
2: you bet. Awesome. Um, so you guys covered a lot of this in part one and just good context, but on a you know on a ten thousand foot level, the Stones are one of those few bands where rock and roll is not the same if you erase them from existence you could take a band even on the level of the who i think and if you remove them from rock history i'm unclear how much the direction of rock and roll changes you can't say that about the stones it's you know beatles stones led zeppelin Jimi hendrix rock and roll is not rock and roll without these guys it's it's just not the same and you also have to note that 20 for for a 20 year period starting in the last episode you guys covered a lot of from 1963 to 1983 i don't think any band has ever put out very good to great material over two decades not springsteen not u2 not any other legacy band including the beatles and and led zeppelin um they released an album almost every year from 1964 to 1974, with 1970 being the, the, the skipped year out of Altamont. Uh, I don't know. Can you name another band like that? I can't.
1: Well, I mean, I think Dylan was still putting out music on a regular basis, but yeah, well, we did our Dylan episodes. and Right. There's some <laughs> variable quality up there in the 80s. I think yep. we can all agree. Right. Yep. But that's basically it, if, if, especially if you're going from 63 to 83. That's Dylan and the Stones. And you're completely correct about this. I, uh, they are, <clears throat> the funny thing is, we spent, you know, you know three hours. Uh, talking about the first decade of the Stones' career, we're going to have to compress the last fifty of their, their <laughs> career to the problem. present date. The Stones are touring right now, coming to a theater near you, or actually, it's not a theater; it's it's a stadium. mega stadium yeah. near you. Um, and they're still doing it, and they're still bringing it like a mother live. They still have it. They still have the energy. They still have the excitement. Of course, you know it, it, it's probably harder to appreciate if you're sitting in the back row of Soldier Field uh, as Scott was. (laughs) Six
0: rows from the the very back. It's a different kind of experience back there. (laughs) Right, you
1: have to watch the screens because there's just these little ants marching around on the stage who are
0: the guys who are playing the song. Mick's not very big to begin with, and when you're that far away, he looks even smaller.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As I said, he's just a little soldier ant, just like furiously working his butt off, even after like heart surgery. Uh, But they're still doing it today. And I think maybe the argument I'm going to make is that we all know the early part of this this show we're going to talk about yes as, as scott says we're in the middle of one of the bigger winning streaks in in uh popular music history um and then there were some dips but i would argue that they never except for that weird 80s era which is kind of almost comical uh never went into true decline and then they, when they came back they came back well uh, there are flaws and they're never going to be the stones of beggars banquet or Lay it bleed um, but they still are making good music and they're still absolutely killing it live on the road and uh, maybe they're careerists maybe they're professionals but you know by god aren't we grateful for you know an old reliable car that we know that every day when we go out into the garage <laughs> and we turn on the ignition it's going to start this band will still start you up you up even to this day and uh, i guess you know since i've been talking about how good they still are as a live band this is where we begin we began with the first sort of epic world historical legendary stones tour the ones uh, i talked in our pre-show notes about how much i make fun of people like grail marcus who like to mythologize things like this but this is the rolling stones in 1969 let it bleed which we of course covered in our last show had not actually come out yet. It was in the can, but it hadn't come out yet. Uh, stones finally embark upon their first major American concert tour since 1966. This results in, uh, a lot of things, including the occasional stray murder and the beating of Marty Balin of Jefferson airplane by the hell's angels at Altamont. Um, you know i I've never much liked Jefferson Airplane, but Marty didn't deserve it. Um, <laughs> this, of course, though, is documented on the legendary, and I'm gonna come right out here and say it, incredibly overrated live album called Get Your Ya-Ya's Out The Rolling Stones in Concert 1969 Charlie Watts jumping up in the air with a guitar even though he didn't play guitar um in, in, on the cover uh, it's a very famous album it's widely considered one of the greatest live albums ever released i don't agree and i wonder if you guys feel the same way or if you you think this is truly one of you know the great live documents
2: of the rock era It would not be in my top 10 live albums of all time um it might not even be in my top 20. that said i don't i don't mind it i think it's a lot better than a lot of the other live albums they would put out i'm talking about uh flashpoint and still life which are truly execrable live albums (laughs) why those ever were released i have no idea maybe we'll get to that later um but i think this is a decent live document um I think the high point for me and i really was hoping to avoid talking about this song in the era of jeffrey epstein um but stray cat blues uh, the the reimagining the reimagined slowed down version i really like it's to me it's the exact same chord progression and tempo as led zeppelin's your time is gonna uh your time is gonna come Just sort of a druggy jam. Uh, the Midnight Rambler is really good, uh, and the Chuck Berry covers, Carol and Little Queenie, uh, something they would keep going back to, and and it's really never left their set. The Chuck Berry, uh, Gut Check.
0: Yeah, and for I, yeah, if you've listened to previous episodes, you know I don't spend a ton of time with live releases generally. I've heard all these Stones when I've heard Yaya's, yeah, 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 it's 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 okay. What I spend a lot more time on is I, I work with a guy who had a ton of Stones uh, bootleg live albums, and I, I spend far more time with those. Uh, Let Your Leads Lungs Out from 71, uh, Welcome to New York from 72, uh, Rocks Off from 73. Um, that's the live stuff, the live Stone stuff that I spend the vast majority of my time with. Um, so I, I think Yaya's is okay. I've seen a lot of the Stones, uh, concert films too. And those are of quite variable quality as well. The one that, that they did after, uh, Tattoo You, um, from Philly. Um, is not very good at all, and I can't remember what what it's called. Uh, oh, let's spend the night together. Uh, that that live concert is very very poor.
1: Directed by famous seventies film director Hal Ashby of all people. Yeah, just random factoid. Yeah.
0: But uh, but yeah, I mean if you can get your hands, I, I mean get your yayas yeah, yeah, out is okay. I, I those bootlegs that I mentioned, the, the ones that I have. And, and they're out there. They're floating. You can find them. There's YouTube clips, I'm sure, of most of those uh, concerts, I think, are, are better documents of what they were as a live band back during that time.
1: I mean, okay, the thing about Yaya's is that I've never liked the mix, and, and this is like the Stones trying to be a serious band. You know, Gone are the days of Beatlemania, where people are shrieking and screaming, and you can't hear the, the, the music being played. They did that. There's you know, that terrible album that we didn't even discuss on <laughs> our prior episode called uh, "Got Live" if you want it, which is just like you know, like the aviary din, the aircraft noise of girls going, Aah! you know, the whole time, and it's just awful. Uh, this is the era, uh, late '60s. It's you know, the hippie, you know, protest era. People are sitting down and respectfully listening, and then dancing and getting, you know, uh, you know, uh, getting up and moving around. Uh, and they were stiff, though. That's the thing you could just tell that they they'd been a little bit out of practice because they hadn't been doing it for too many years and of course that The other issue is they were integrating a new member into the band. And of course, this is where you have to talk about a guy named Mick Taylor. We mentioned him briefly in our last show, but he didn't really make much of an impression on the actual recorded music of Let It Bleed. He plays a little bit on Honky Tonk Women, the single that came out around that time. He's like on one or two songs on the album. It's on "Yah Ya's though, where you really first hear him as a guitarist. Uh, And he's, the saving grace of this record and he is of course going to be one of the featured performers on everything they're going to do for the next several years this guy came out of john miles Bruce blues breakers uh which was sort of like the finishing school for blues guitarists you know they graduated eric clapton and mm. then peter green and then mick taylor all in sequence went on to join all these famous bands um and taylor joins the stones and he fits in really well and when they have to reconfigure these songs for live performance some songs like you know sympathy for the devil which you know in its studio version is just like you know you know it's 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 congas and mangos and it's you know weird ghostly <laughs> yow yow like you know yelps in the background. You can't play that in Madison Square Garden and hit the back row and have any effect. So what are they gonna do? They're gonna, they're gonna turn it into a guitar rocker. And it's Mick Taylor who helps them bring it off. who turns Love in Vain into mm. an amazing live number. It's Mick Taylor who does an amazing job with Midnight Rambler. Uh, Taylor is the guy who is, brings a wonderful touch. Some people criticize him as being like overly busy fussy oh he plays too many notes when you know half as much would do i just wonder before we go on to sticky fingers which is the first album to fully feature him although even there sticky fingers is an album with such a long genesis that some songs were recorded before he even joined um what do you guys think about taylor as a player
2: oh i'm thrilled to do this now um before we get into his his albums mick taylor may actually be my favorite lead guitar player in, ever but he's certainly in the conversation because um, he's so tasteful i don't think he's ever playing too many notes sometimes mm-hmm. he, he, i even think he's too restrained um his box of tricks i would say is somewhat limited but man oh man does he make great use of those tricks um i look at him as almost the inverse image of jimmy page page had all kinds of innovative ideas about how to play <laughs> the electric guitar and what to do with it yeah but he could really be sloppy live um Contrast, to that, uh, contrast that to Taylor's playing on, on on some of the live recordings during during this tour, uh, the famous Brussels show, the famous Dallas show, um, the slide work on Brown Sugar and All Down the Line, uh, the, the lyricism on Love and Bane, You Can't Always Get What You Want. I mean, his note selection is right on point. He's as tasteful and melodic as you can possibly be. Um, he wasn't very demonstrative or showy I remember I think in his book Keith comments about how he was always just sort of gazing down at his at his guitar neck uh, but that was fine because you he had all the, the original chaos going around him <laughs> yeah he was the original shoegazer but you've got Keith and Mick jumping around all around him he doesn't need to be that demonstrative. <laughs>
0: I, I I just adore Mick Taylor's playing, and uh, uh, again, he's in the handful of my favorite, you know, lead guitarists of all time, without a doubt. You know, reading back what what Keith would say about him in later years, he kind of alternates between saying the, you know, he was too busy and and didn't play exactly the way I wanted him to, to then at other times saying he really was wonderful and a great addition to the band. And let's not forget, as we're going to talk about very soon, Mick Taylor also uh, very, very, very likely uh, co-wrote a bunch of things he did not get any credit for. Um, uh, on the actual songwriting credits, and so he brought that aspect to the, to the band too. When, when Keith was down and out and incapable in of contributing, Mick had to uh, to bounce ideas off of someone, and that someone happened to be Mick Taylor. And he added a lot of depth and a lot of beauty to those songs. Uh, I mean, we'll get to this, but I mean, time waits for no one is just brilliant, and that's virtually all Mick Taylor. Uh, Right away on Sticky Fingers. Can't You Hear Me Knocking. One of my favorite Stones songs. That song doesn't exist without Mick Taylor. It's not happening uh, without Mick's involvement in the band. And so there are a lot of places over these next four or five years where you have songs that quite literally would not have existed uh in that form without mick taylor being in the band i i think uh i, I agree with jeff i i listen to to, to mick taylor I, I i very rarely rarely whether it's on the album or in a live setting rarely think that he's playing too much that he's too busy um i, I think he's he's just he's technically gifted quite clearly um, but I, I think he generally plays within the song and is very tasteful with his his licks and additions and even his solos. His solos aren't, you know, over the top, uh, generally, you know, red hot sort of solos. They, they, they fit the song. They're very lyrical in nature. And uh, he is just a magnificent guitar player.
1: So this brings us of course to the first studio album of the era that we're going to cover and again the sort of the third part of the the classic tetralogy of as, as what we've already referred to as the great winning streak of the Stones career we had beggars banquet we had let it bleed then they took time <clears throat> they broke up with their label they went on tour they became english tax exiles they went on tour again they did a little more recording and finally out comes an album called Sticky Fingers, which everybody loves except me. <laughs> I'm, I'm the only person on the planet who thinks this is the big down swerve in that era, um, I, which is not to say that there aren't at least half of the songs on this record that I consider to be great triumphs. And, and one of them will make my top five, maybe two at the end of the show as the best things the Rolling Stones ever did. But I've always found this album to have a lack of a flow. And I've never, and I guess probably the number one reason why I don't like it as much as everyone else is that the two biggest singles on it are the ones that I like the least. I have never liked Wild Horses. I'm sorry. I just I, 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 this is a song that could be good in other people's hands. I would have loved to hear the Faces do Wild Horses. The Faces could have done a fantastic cover of Wild Horses with good old Ronnie Wood doing a fantastic guitar interpretation of it. Oh, sweet baby. Sugar, as long as I'm alive. Brown sugar. What can you say about brown sugar? Brown sugar, surely, at least, is the greatest ode to the joys of slave rape that has ever been written. (laughs) It has not aged well. It has not aged well. (laughs) But the thing is, is that even at the time, before the woke era happened, I was eight years old or whatever it was when I first heard the song, and I finally decoded the lyrics. I was like, man. (laughs) <laughs> that sucks, <laughs> and it's not even the lyrics that you even get. You yeah, listen, like. G- Stray Cat Blues, we yeah. talked about on our last episode. That's equal. I mean, in fact, Harry, Harry Kachatrian on our last episode pointed out, I was like, well, it's, a, it's an even coin flip between this and Stray Cat, which is more offensive lyrically because, you know, Stray Cat Blues is Mick Jagger having sex with like, you know, 14 year old groupies. And, but Stray Cat gets by because the music is so great. And I find Brown Sugar, although it is a crowd pleaser, and yes, yes, that's a very compulsive riff, I find it to be sort of a retread and a Repeat of greater triumphs earlier in the career. It's like half live with me. It's half, um, you know, uh, you know, street fighting man. It, it sounds like earlier triumphs that have been done again, and it feels a little bit too kind of calculated. Again, I am out on a rock in the middle of the ocean (laughs) as the guy who says he doesn't like Sticky Fingers because he doesn't like Brown Sugar and Wild Horses you guys please defend them and save the honor of political beats by pointing out that these are actually good songs
0: they are good songs Um, although what I will agree with you on is I think that the album does suffer in part due to its sequencing and its flow I I can't think of a more poorly sequenced Stones album at least popular Stones album Uh, than than Sticky Fingers that said uh, I I think the songs here are generally up and down very solid to great Um, Can't You Hear Me Knockin which I mentioned just a minute ago uh, with Mick Taylor um, is just one of my all time favorite Stones songs it is seven minutes plus it is um, that opening riff with uh, Bill Wyman's thumping bass and Charlie just snapping his snare drum in those first five six seconds are delicious I love it um, it has a very kind of Latin, Carlos Santana kind of vibe to it. The first, what two and a half or so, is is the is the song structured, and then there was uh, you know space Love for for a little bit instrumental break with Mc Taylor and, and Bobby Keys on, on saxophone.
1: And then all of a sudden they started listening to their Santana album. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's the
0: Rolling Stones as jam band. And it's great. It's fantastic. For four minutes, yeah. And it wasn't It wasn't supposed to be. They were supposed to shut things down. And uh, Mick Taylor just simply wouldn't stop playing. There's a section where Keys thinks the song is going to end. You can hear the saxophone drop out. Mick keeps going. And if I listen closely enough, I think I hear someone in the background saying, keep playing. something, Something like that. And they do. And uh, Nick continues soloing. Bobby Keys jumps back in after about 10, 15 seconds. And you have still another two minutes or so of this magnificent uh, back and forth between Nick Taylor and, and Bobby Keys on the sax. And it's just it's just amazingly good the way those, those two instruments are weaving all around. Um, you know, that, back to the, the lyrical part at the, the beginning, you know, the, the, Can't You Hear Me Knock It? And, and, and then Charlie pop it in with pop, pop uh, on the snare. I love the, during the Help Me Baby Ain't No Stranger, you hear that organ just creeping in underneath everything. Uh, can't You Hear Me Knock It is one of my favorite, favorite Stone songs. And again, to speak it to Mick Taylor, praise him again for track two on the album, which is Sway. This is one that Keith has absolutely nothing to do with um he's not involved it's it's essentially a <laughs> he was
1: strung out on heroin in his bedroom yeah. and then it was just mick and and mick taylor uh playing this it, it's mick jagger playing the guitars is the, the rhythm yep. guitar on that
0: yep mick's got the rhythm and of course uh mick taylor has the has the has the lead and you know lyrically here <laughs> you know with with keith out of of commission it's a little window as to what i think mick is seeing happening all around him people struggling with drugs uh people struggling with relationships uh and at some point it's it's, you know mick's kind of saying here um well this is the deal right if if you're gonna go down that path because mick um wasn't afraid to dabble uh, and maybe a little more than that but but never was a a junkie right the way that these other guys were in the band many of the other guys were in the band and Sway, in a way, is Mick saying, you know, it's the deal you, you sign. You know, you're going to start down this path. What else would you expect than it's problems? That, it's that
1: demon life that's got, got you, you in its
0: sway. Yep. And strings here by Paul Buckmaster, which are fabulous. Uh, sway is just a great, great... And, and of course, the, the Taylor solos. That second solo is just stunningly good toward the end of the song. Fantastic. I'll also defend Wild Horses from from Jeff's uh, uh, beatdown. I I think Wild Horses is a very good song. I don't know if that's because I am also a a, a massive Graham Parsons fan. Um, And, of course, this is one of the most Graham Parsons-influenced tracks, I think, that Keith ever put together. Um, The Parsons version with the Flying Burrito Brothers even came out before the Stones version on Sticky Fingers. Uh, I think the Flying Burrito Brothers had their version out in 1970. Um, but this is just a really, really nice song inspired in part by Graham Parsons. The guys met in 68 down in South Africa when the birds were on tour down there. And and Parsons really taught, you know, as much as Mick and Keith knew the blues, uh, like the back of their hand, and they did, uh, you know, Graham taught them about country. Uh, and, and you hear that influence seeping in on a number of tracks over the next decade or so. And even past them, even you know the more, the more current albums like Voodoo Lounge have these country-tinged uh, songs on them. And I think that has a lot to do with what, what Graham gave them in their conversations. Uh, Wild Horse's tack piano played by Jim Dickinson uh charlie tasteful as always kind of powers in and then dr- and then drops out in at the right times to add a sense of drama to the song uh I, I really love wild horses those are the three i wanted to focus on i'll throw it over to jeff and i i think i would imagine jeff's going to also defend the honor of sticky fingers uh, yeah
2: you and i are largely going to be simpatico here um I agree with you about the running order. Um, it, on subsequent albums, notably, I think, Tattoo You, they do this thing where the first side sounds like the party and the second yeah. side sounds like the hangover or the come down. Um, I wish they did a little bit more of that here. Maybe Wild Horses and Sway on the second side and you move uh, Bitch up to side A. Because uh, I think that last gasp of the album with I Got the Blues, mm-hmm. uh, the uh which is again with the Billy Preston organ solo coming in, it's it's just lovely. Um, Sister Morphine and Moonlight Mile, it's just perfect. It's uh, it to me, it evokes the. It's what you're listening to at 3 a.m. when everybody else has left the party. You know, it's like just you and the pizza delivery guy hanging out, and you're debating whether you're going to clean all this stuff up now or you're going to wait till the morning after you wake up. <laughs> uh, that's what that's what that's. that that evokes um the party's over everybody's left um i think this is i think let it bleed is my is is the best stones album objectively to the extent that we can even be objective about these things but sticky fingers is probably my favorite um it's not quite as dark as let it bleed the sounds a little bit more bigger a little bigger and more expansive um and i don't want to give the band too much credit for for forethought or big ideas cuz they're not really a big ideas band <laughs> you know no, to contrast it to your uh, your beach boys episode the stones never sat around thinking okay let's write a teenage symphony to god <laughs> it was never that um but I think in the same way that Let It Bleed sort of kind of spoke to the death of 60s idealism, now you've got sicky fingers, which to me sounds like what you get when that idealism is replaced by sheer decadence. Mm. You know, We know we're not going to save the world anymore, but we sure do like these drugs and this sex, so let's keep that. <laughs> uh, and, and in terms of specific songs, Scott, you've already said all that there is to be said, I think, about Can't You Hear Me Knock, and I, it's my favorite song to listen to. It's my favorite song to play it's even before Martin Scorsese got a hold of it Um,
1: by the way Jeff is, is it just me or does Martin Scorsese seem to ruin all of our favorite musical memories by putting them into his films yeah, yes. I, I, I'm so you know, sick. I'm, I'm so sick of it. Like, like, oh, here's a Boston mafia film. Oh no, no, <laughs> Monkey Man's
2: on the background.
1: What does that have to do with the Boston mafia? Right. And now, do, all
2: of a sudden, people know it. And, I dang. do like the opening sequence of Blow with "Can't You Hear Me Knocking?" When they're tracing the production process of the cocaine. Yeah, that actually that, that kind it, it kind of works. It does. Yeah, I would say we. I already mentioned Billy Preston. You got to move the Mississippi Fred McDowell tune. They do a great job with that. And then um, we haven't said enough. I, I don't think about bitch, and a lot of people don't realize that's not Mick Taylor playing the solo. That's Keith Richards doing all Chuck Berry.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it's hard to understand why people are, are confused by this. If it sounds like Chuck Berry, it's <laughs> it's Keith. It, it always has been. It always will be. Yeah, I'm
1: I mean, bitch is of course great, and it should have been the lead single from the album instead yes. of Brown Sugar. I, yes. I think it's. I think it's the. If you're talking about the hit-making tracks, that's the one. I'm gonna. I and assess- it's mildly offensive. Uh, but you know what the thing is? He's not calling He's not, right, right, any right. woman a bitch. No. He's just Wait. saying that love is a bitch, right? and you know i always misheard that lyric you know you've got to fix it charlie you've got to i always thought he was telling charlie Watts to do the mixing engineering duties on the album <laughs> you've, you've got to fix it you've got to mix it charlie you know uh and, and is sitting here is like listen i have to keep time for you sons of guns <laughs> now you're giving me this job um uh, but yeah bitches of course just an epic track um the After I have criticized this record for so long, I I will say this, that it ends with two of the greatest things that the Rolling Stones ever recorded, and they couldn't be more different from one another. The first one of them, of course, is Dead Flowers. God, I love Dead Flowers. I love Dead Flowers. I even survived through a moment where I was in high school driving a girl home from a date Uh, You know, and I was trying to like impress her and be like smooth and romantic. And Dead Flowers was playing, and she's like, Can you turn this awful country music off? And I was just just, like, (laughs) I got wounded, man. I was just like, (laughs) God damn. You know, it didn't work out. It was never meant to be, clearly. But there's just something so wonderful. You know, after the Stones had done these variously like goofy and self parodic takes on country music with like high and dry from aftermath and dear doctor on Baker's banquet. Then you have dead flowers. It's this, this gloriously assured tribute to the Bakersfield sound. It's bucko and it's Merle Haggard. Um, and then of course it then interfaces with, with Keith Richards hanging out with Graham Parsons. And then you get this perfect balance in the lyrics between silliness and seriousness you know like uh, there's that line where you know you can send me dead flowers every morning say it with dead flowers which is the, f- the floral uh, mm-hmm. it's uh FTD. FTD, wasn't it? <laughs> ftd say it with flowers say it with dead flowers and then jagger comes back and says you know and i won't forget to put roses on your grave oh it's so funny but of course i played that also- song at my wedding yeah but the thinly disguised heartbreak in there is real you know you you get that sense that he's snarking to keep from crying and then taylor i don't even know if is it mick or is it keith there's no there's a dispute on this no one's entirely sure he played it live but on the studio like this this guitar line that almost sounds like it's a pedal steel uh it's so fluid and and you know, just it's a pastiche that's so flawless that it's the only country song that the Stones ever did wrote themselves that would then be covered by other rebel country greats. I don't know if you guys have ever heard Towns Van Zandt's version mm-hmm. of it or Steve Earle's version of it. Also great. <laughs>
2: I'm sorry Sorry to interrupt Yeah Uh, But Alejandro Escovedo's version of Sway Yeah Have
0: you ever heard that? Yes, yes, yes Oh my goodness That's very good So Dead
1: Flowers though Fantastic song But then this song This album Which I've panned in large part Ends with um, It's this or it's You can't always get what you want uh, As the greatest song of the Rolling Stones career 55 years in the business it's called moonlight mile and it's a jagger richards composition in name only richards was nowhere to be found this is mick taylor and mick jagger mick jagger's playing the acoustic guitar mick taylor's doing the electric fills Uh, richards was nowhere to be found then you know you have this this beautiful sound and, and, and you talked about how the Stones weren't going into like big movements. They weren't writing teenage symphonies to God. But I really do think that that lyric is, is, is Mick's greatest achievement. It's this hauntedly desolate travelogue of the yawning, moonlit expanses of backroads America. Uh, you know, there's... You talk about like, when the wind blows and the rain is cold, with a head full of snow, and I, that may be a cocaine reference, but it doesn't sound like it. It just sounds like you know, like it's it's cold and it's rainy. You know, you talk about like you know, burning your clothes for, for fire for warmth, and how I'm sleeping under strange, strange skies. It it, it all feeds. Ineluctably back into that sense of of a person who becomes lost in the an unforgiving vastness of an unknown and an unknowable country, which is the United States, and Jagger just builds up to that that big triumph where at the end he's you know he's letting go, he's letting go, and then it dies away, and then Mick Taylor just plays that little. Beautiful guitar solo that duels with Paul Buckmaster's strings, and then the piano just echoes like ripples upon the water. And it ends an album of, I think, uneven quality, but it ends it on their greatest conclusion of their history. This is better than Salt of the Earth. As I said, this might even be better than You Can't Always Get What You Want. This, to me, even though it's so uncharacteristic for the Rolling Stones, in a weird way, could be their signature song.
0: great way to close uh sticky fingers and it also sort of leads us to the next i don't say era because you're still in the same area but but uh tax exiles i mean i don't know how deep we want to go into the story here but but uh essentially due to uh uh contracts they signed with alan klein he failed to pay income tax for like four or five years on their income and of course they don't have that money anyway and uh they, they oh
1: it's to- not even that he failed to pay the income it's that he also owned all right. the royalties and the rights because of the the, the the swindle contract that they signed and so they were never going to be able to dig their way right. out of that hole
0: <laughs> not if they stayed where they were because uh, what 93 percent tax rate on <laughs> the uh the, the income on the upper level in uh, in england so they they, uh, they couldn't stay there anymore. They play what, t- ten, uh, 10 nights, a uh, farewell little tour in England before heading out and going to France. Uh, so they're English expats playing American music for the most part and living in France uh, and, and working at Keith's Mansion. Uh, and that's where Exile on Main Street comes in. Uh, this, is, um, this is a classic album, clearly. Uh, what I think largely if not completely lives up to its billing although it was not well reviewed at the time of release uh, critics would come around to it uh, relatively quickly but it was not received with open arms when it was released the sprawling what 18 track uh four you know double lp Exile on Main Street.
1: Hey, do you want me to give you the selected critical notices for uh, sure, Exile on not? Main Street from night 19- Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna quote from uh, uh, beloved uh, rock critic Lester Bangs, writing in Cream in 1972. Quote: This is at once the worst studio album the Rolling Stones have ever made, and the most maddeningly inconsistent and strangely depressing release of their career. Uh, uh, Lenny Kay in Rolling Stone magazine wrote: This great Stones album of their tour period it's yet to come this is not it uh and here here's another one um exile is not one of my favorite albums generally i think it sounds lousy of course i'm ultimately responsible for it but it's really not good and there's no concerted effort or intention to it and that last quote that's from mick jagger and that's in 2003 (laughs)
0: Well, I think it's better than that. I'll go on a limb and say that. Uh, Exile is, uh, it's not all in France. There were a handful, six, seven songs they brought with them that were some years old. Tumbling Dice is older. Uh, Sweet Virginia is older. Aldon Line is an older su- uh, tune. But once they get there, uh, uh, it's a mess. Uh, I mean, it's a mess. There are so much drugs happening. And not just with Keith, but with guys like Bobby Keys. Uh, and 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 the producer and engineers, too Andy Johns and others, are just falling down this well of drugs and unable to claw their way out. You have Mick and Keith essentially writing individually, sending messages back and forth sometimes through their lyrics. Uh, Mick is married to Bianca at this point and uh, uh, Anita and Keith really don't like Bianca and that that really strains that relationship between Mick and Keith and their ability to write songs together and yet in all of this you come out at the very end and uh, Jeff will make this point because I know he he wrote about this where this was not you know this was not planned I didn't want to go and kind of have this touchstone album that that grabs from every single piece of, of American music, from gospel to soul to blues to country. It just kind of happened that way. And uh, it's, it's a masterpiece. And uh, I'll have Jeff DeFore uh, lead us off here with his thoughts on Exile.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, hanging out in the basement of a French mansion for months on end doing hard drugs is not... Really how I would choose to live my life but damned if it didn't work for them it's hard to, it's hard to argue with the results um, let's let's start it this way with with every double album we I think we always like to play the game of what you would l- leave off of it to get to a single album and it's probably harder for on this album than any other I mean mm-hmm. it's a lot harder than the white album for instance the white albums pretty easy to get down to a single album Um and that's that speaks to how good it is and and maybe it's the best double album for that reason you can you might start with i just want to see his face which is i think the only real throwaway track here it's like fitter happier on okay computer the one that you automatically (laughs) just skip over
1: wrong very wrong but anyways continue you you actually listen to Fitter Happier? No, I I love oh. I I think I just want to see his face. It's like I oh okay, I okay. Like I, that was nearly made That's my more top five
2: position than you listen to Fitter Happier. Okay,
1: uh, no, 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 I uh, but you know Casino Boogie is the one you yeah, cast I, out of I, exile. But anyway, Casino
2: Boogie. I, I mean maybe the Robert Johnson cover stop breaking down just because it's a cover. Maybe let it loose or Soul Survivor oh, or no. step down to the others, but but from there it gets really really hard. I mean I know. Turn on the Run isn't really considered a classic, but I defy you to leave that on the cutting room floor. Uh, Casino Boogie. I, nobody, does anybody do these dive bar blues songs quite as well? It's almost like you can you can smell the old overhaul as you're listening to the song. <laughs> um, what else? Uh, Rocks Off, which is one of the great album openers, I think. Uh, All Charlie Watts, the junky poetry that they bring to it, the sunshine bores the daylights out of me. I mean, how good is that? this joint has this tempo that is uh, short of hardcore punk it's about as fast as you'll ever hear a rock song you think the whole thing's gonna go off the rails at any moment and it's probably got their, their greatest collection of country tinge songs Tumbling Dice Sweet Virginia and Torn and Frayed I don't think they ever did anything better than that in the country vein maybe Dead Flowers
1: Okay, we're going to have to do a little ping pong here because we're going to go back and forth. This is, of course, uh, an album that we could have recorded the entire podcast about. It has 18 songs on it. I don't – and by the way, 18 songs, 66 minutes. Mm Mm-hmm. God, I love that. I'm always a fan of the brevity of albums when artists recognize that they can edit themselves, that they don't have to go on for too long. This is two records, and yet it still feels like it's a, you know, over in a flash. Uh, yeah, Casino Boogie. Maybe the one song that I might remove, I don't even think it's bad. It just feels inessential. It feels like one of those songs on the B side of It's Only Rock and Roll, where you're like, eh, I don't really remember too much about that. Ironically enough, though, it's better than any of those songs on It's Only Rock and Roll, which you know, just tells you kind of what a, a nader they were at at that point. But... uh as Scott pointed out and and I've written about this the thing is that you need to understand the story of Exile is that it was not supposed to be this way everyone talks about this album there are myths myths that have arisen around this album uh that are in fact so you know you know thickly formed and so fully sort of co You know, coalesced that God help you if you would try to tear them down. But I will do that. I will be that man. Uh, The myth, of course, is that it's Keith Richards' album. That this is you know Keith at his greatest, strung out on. You know he's he's like a some sort of wheedily laboring junkie Hercules rerouting (laughs) a river of smack into southern France to feed his habits and the habits of all the hangers-on and the the weird people who are hanging around Cote and uh, you know you coming up with. These great songs and these riffs like, you know, in the middle of the night wakes up uh, at 3 a.m. and says, I got to record this riff I heard in my dreams. We're going to put it on the ending of Rocks Off. Um, um, And then, you know, randomly he shows up sober one day at three o'clock in the afternoon which is a completely normal human time for real people. <laughs> and then he's like, I have a song. And of course, everyone else is gone because they've just become accustomed to his junkie hours, which is to say we're going to record from midnight onwards until 6 a.m. And the only people left are like the producer, the the engineer, and the horn players. And what do they do? In 25 minutes, they record Happy. <laughs> Happy, which is the signature Keith Richards song of all Time happy, uh, where I have to observe that Keith Richards sings incredibly well for a guy who sounds like he is constantly falling (laughs) off of a cliff. I love that song. And it just you cannot get up and not want to dance when you don't hear like the opening riff to Happy, Never Kept Dollar Past Sunset, Always Burned a Hole in My Pants. That's the myth of Exile on Main Street, but the reality in my opinion of this is that this is really Mick Jagger's album. Mick Jagger saved this from being a disaster. Mick Jagger after Keith A got completely Over addicted to heroin to the point where he's no longer a functional human being or a collaborator, but also where they had to literally flee France because the (laughs) authorities were closing in on them as if they were a narco terrorist regime suddenly setting up camp in Nice. They had to leave because there were so many drugs, so many drug Users and dealers hanging around that studio; that it was becoming a public hazard. He got banned from the country for four years. Have, have they he, had they, it caused touring problems for them in the future. Have you read the Robert? The, uh,
0: have you read the Robert Greenfield books from? from uh, no,
1: scene? I. am ha- not sure. I, no, I don't believe so. What, what, what is this? He
0: was he was there for XL recording and and the tours right around there, and so uh, first hand accounts and of course interviews as well. And I have two of them. One is. Oh, uh, no, I can't remember them. Exile. There's one specifically a recording of Exile and one of the tour, but th- my point is there are stories in there, many, many stories. At times, it reads just like a running, you know, a running diary of, of drug events, and it's... Um, you know, it, it's kind of there's a you know a myth to it. There's a mythology to it, and um, then what Greensfield's books make very clear is it, it wasn't. It was like sad and dep- yeah, depressing it's and it's ugly really kind of and cool brutal. It. it was yeah. Was, there's was nothing cool about this this era at all, except for the music. But the way they were living their personal lives, um, and, and the amount of drugs that were running in and out of the, uh, out of that French mansion, and the trouble they were in, and the depths they would go to to find drugs when when they needed a fix, and all. It, it's just ugly. It's ugly stuff.
1: And the thing is, it's going to eventually show up on the music, as we'll find out in their next few albums. But for here, for this point, it worked. And the reason it worked, in, and i got to say, nobody gives Mick enough credit for this. Mick himself doesn't give himself enough credit for this. But what happened is that they took the album to Los Angeles. And you know, one of the very, you know, the USA was still uh, uh, allowable as a place for them to like live <laughs> at <out>. least temporarily. <laughs> yeah. they, hadn't, they hadn't been kicked out of there with their traveling medicine show yet and so he went to uh los angeles started sort of rescuing the the tracks that had been given to him and then he started hanging out with a guy named billy preston who we know if you uh, listen to our beatles episode from the latter part of that great soul singer who would become a part of the stones entourage and they're they're performing ensemble for many years to come um billy took him to sunday church so when i would see uh you know the gospel sounds aretha franklin would perform occasionally they would hear you know they would feel the spirit of the lord moving within them mick was moved by it and this is something that he had never heard in a rolling stone song up until this point and then jagger actually said okay you know what we can do this and so what happens you get let it loose give give it a complete gospel makeover sweet virginia comes out of the vaults and then they give it that that communal choral sing-along yes. with that great you know you know you'll come on Sweet Virginia you gotta scrape the shit off your shoes that's such a great great chorus I put that, uh, I more put that in the same
0: category as when we had uh, we did the band episode and we talked about the weight and how it just sounds yeah. like they are around in a circle at a campfire no one departs, doing the thing that's exactly how this version of Sweet Virginia sounds yeah.
1: A real, and yet it's not, and that's the thing. Gotta give credit to the to, to Mick and to 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 Jimmy Miller for getting that sound to sound authentic. People always complain that this is a badly produced album. I I, I, I won't have any trap with that. I think it's an incredibly produced album, but I think you know. It, th- you can talk about every song on Exile on Main Street, but the one that, to me, has always meant the most is Shine a Light, uh, which, again, hugely influenced by you know that gospel blast that Mick got from hanging out in Los Angeles. This is an older song. It's something that Mick had written back in 1969, and it was a tribute to Brian Jones, something that he's always talked around, never quite openly admitted. But it, it's clearly the case, and uh, you know we didn't actually even note this. That you know after the Stones made Jones quit the band, uh, he died only a few months afterwards in, in a swimming pool, you know, nominally drowning. There are all sorts of weird conspiracy theories, but it, it almost felt like it was inevitable. He was on a collision course for a disaster. And then they park you know, what two three days later. 2 3 days later and you see the outtakes where they're in the, like the dressing room and Mick is like you know basically on the verge of tears he's like yeah I don't even know how, how am I supposed to do this um, so he wrote Shine a Light and the song in its exile on Main Street version is basically a miracle because you know when you talk about the Rolling Stones, you don't usually talk about emotional sincerity. Mm-hmm. And gospel, as a vernacular, repi- relies upon emotional sincerity to do, like, at least half of what its argumentative work. Because there's relative harmonic and chordal orthodoxy to the musical structures. And so, like, you know, you, you know you've got to really you know, sing with power if you're going to get the point across. But here, here on this song, um, you feel the spirit. Uh, every vocal inflection feels real it feels practiced. it's not faked it's not affected it's not auto it's it's automatic you know billy preston's on the piano there and uh he, it's not flashy it's just you know roots and it plants the band firmly in the earth as even as they they, they push skywards with that incredible mick taylor solo and Listen, Brian Jones had a really troubled relationship with the Rolling Stones, obviously. You know, they've talked about it many times. They've been very open about it. He was not a nice guy. He had real issues but Mick wrote him a send-off worthy of his legacy when he has that lyric, you know, he says, you know, the angels beating their wings in times, smiles on their faces and tears right in their eyes. I thought I heard one sigh for you. Come on up now. Come on up now. Come on up now. May the good Lord shine a light on you and make every song you sing your favorite tune. That is, the uh, again, you never really get, uh, you know, unaffected uh, sincerity from the Rolling Stones. There's always a bit of distance. This is one of those rare moments when you have it. And I think, to me, the triumph of exile on Main Street is the inadvertent triumph of a song like
2: Can I also say a word about Mick's vocals here, too? Yeah, please. They're, stylistically, they're getting a little bit far afield, not nearly as far afield as they would get in a couple albums hence. But Mick's range here is really tremendous. You guys were talking about in the in the earlier episode about how he's not that great a vocalist, and I agree with that. He's, he's the best frontman that rock and roll's ever seen. He's not a... a, a a tremendously great vocalist in a, in a classical sense. But look what he does here and with the variety he gets. Ventilator Blues, he's basically doing Sun House with that gravelly Mississippi kind of thing. Uh, Shine a Light, like you said. He's doing that soaring gospel, really, really nice. Um, a song like Torn and Frayed, Country Harmonies, uh, Loving Cup, Country balladeering By the way, loving, "Loving Cup."
1: By the way, is is you know the theme track to a very junk sick Charlie Brown Christmas. That's what I love <laughs> about that. Is if, if you listen to that opening piano line, it does sound like you know the the the, mm. Quiraldi, the Vince coraldi yeah. you know, like you know do 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 like you know the the piano theme, and and yeah, it turns into this this song about Nick Taylor um, committing a sexual act upon a woman that is yeah. very intimate.
2: <laughs> what can you say? The other thing i would say about this album is unlike some girls and we're going to talk about this a lot where the bonus tracks and outtakes are essential to understanding the album here they're really not uh, the bonus tracks that they released a few years ago are mostly just demos early versions they're fine for the completest but they're not essential at all agreed
1: completely agreed they, they said everything they needed to say on the record <laughs> yeah
0: um, let me, a couple of things. Songs I love. Just very quick. I love Soul Survivor. I know the lyrics are ridiculous. Uh, if, you, if you want to think about Exile is you don't know the lyrics until you actually see a lyric sheet sometimes because Arr, matey, but it's sailing the high seas. It's the high seas. It's pirates. Th- this but, is
1: a prediction of Keith Richards as that guy in Pirates of the Caribbean.
0: Yeah, but Soul Survivor, I just love that guitar sound. Um, let It Loose, I disagree with Jeff that it, that maybe it's one that should take, oh man, Let It Loose, the gospel and soul element. Oh, you so misheard good.
1: me. Let It Loose is amazing. No, other Jeff, amazing
0: song. <laughs> uh, ventilator Blues, which is one that where Mick Taylor got a got a co-write on. That hard slide, chest studio sound, fantastic. Just mentioned Love and Cup, but two uh, two ones that always sort of define the album for me. Uh, I, no one's mentioned Tumbling Dice. Uh, one of the Exile songs that still gets played on tour. Tumbling Dice is. Yeah I mean it, it, that groove can cannot be beat that perfect tempo um, this is one of the songs that goes back a bit, I think, to 68 when it was first written. And, and Mick actually had to do some research. He was not a gambler. He actually talked to a, one of, I think, Keith's housekeepers, who was a gambler, uh, about some of the phrases and, and some of the words he could use in, in Tumbling Dice. Uh, there's this tangible ache to the song. And, uh, you know, the swagger, the lyrics, and melody are kind of turned upside down by that coda at the very, very end. What a great groove. Uh, this is one that, where Charlie was having some trouble getting exactly what they wanted to. So Jimmy Miller plays too. There's actually two drums on Tumblr and Dice. And I know Jeff before has mentioned it, it's Torn and Frayed. Goodness gracious, I love Torn and Frayed. Uh, Al Perkins uh, plays Pedal Steel on this country soul song. I I don't think they ever were able to replicate Torn and Frayed live the way they were able to capture it on, on Exile. And no, lyrically played
2: it, I think. Yeah. and, and oh, like, I know what a Black Crows fan you are, the Black Crows version of that is outstanding from yes, their live show.
0: Yes, which is where the first time I, I, I heard the song was uh, was actually via... The first time the, uh, I
2: appreciated it, really, is, is, is hearing the Black Crows take on it.
0: Yeah. But the lyrics here do kind of pull back the curtain a bit on what's happening, right? A dressing rooms filled with parasites on stage. The band has got problems. A little bit later on, you know, Joe's got a cough. Sounds kind of rough. Yeah. And the coding to fix it. Doctor prescribes, drugstore provides, who's going to help him kick it? Uh, Which would be the description of virtually every person hanging around the band at this point, uh, coming through on Torn and Frayed. (laughs) XL on Main Street is, uh, again, we're talking about songs. I, I agree with uh, Jeff Blair. Casino Boogie is maybe the one that I, uh, t- if you've got to you know, take a song off, maybe Casino Boogie, but everything else just works out, just works so well together right through the very last track. Again, I love Soul Survivor. So, of course, from, this, from these heights of, uh, from the height of heights here on XL on Main Street, they, they can't fall off from here, right, guys? I mean, they, they, they're in perfect shape to capitalize with their next album which happens to be Goat's Head Soup. August of 1973, this is, uh, what, uh, it's, it's, it's the next year again, as, as Jeff mentioned earlier, they're releasing albums uh, annually at this point. And it is, um, I think, without controversy to say that Goat's Head Soup is uh, is a step down from Axel Main Street. I, I don't think I'm going to get a lot of blowback or, or discussion on that point. That said... There's some good things here on Goat's Head Soup, but from the very first track from Dancing with Mr. D, it's like there's alarm bells and uh, and and lights flashing. There's something wrong with what's going to transpire on Goat's Head Soup. Andy Johns and Jimmy Miller are, are producing, but they are lost uh, in the throes of, of heroin addiction, as is as is still Keith at this point. Keith Keith's uh, Bobby Keys is is a, is, a, is a junkie. He quits uh, mid tour around this time. This is just-
2: He got fired. How many times did he get fired? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, he, got, he got fired i think he got fired for like some sort of incredible groupie escapade in a hotel room or something like that and then mick jagger who of course was you know throughout all these things was only the only reasonably sober person in the band was just like enough of this i need a reliable person who i can trust
0: <laughs> um and you know keith this point is basically emulating brian uh, you know, the drugs and are out of control behavior is out of control and on the flip side you have uh, you know, from Mick's point of view, because Mick's always got the business perspective in his mind—not um, not quite as much as he would maybe a decade from 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 this point. But Exile didn't sell all that well, and there wasn't a hit single, and so there, there's some concern too about well, commercially. How's it going to happen? Because as we mentioned earlier, that the old stuff, the '60s stuff, they don't have the rights to. Uh, they, they don't make you know the royalties off this. So. There's also some, some question about uh, commercial success, too. And, and so you have Goat's Head Soup. And uh, I'll, I'll throw it open to uh, to you guys once again. I, I mean, from uh, for, if Exile is a 10 on uh, a 10-point scale, how far a step down is Goat's Head Soup?
1: Jeff, I'm going to throw this one to you first, because my only question is,
2: what the hell happened? No, <clears throat> I'm glad you threw it to me, because I'm going to be a little contrarian about this. I don't think it's that far of a step down as some other people do. I would still give this album a seven or an eight. I really like it as a listen. Um, I think it would be better regarded, actually, had it not followed Exile and Sticky Fingers. Um, I don't mind Dance with Mr. D. To me, it sounds like uh, the Stones' answer to to Zeppelin-style riff rock. Uh, It's got that incessant riff. I never really get sick of it. Again is another one of those great morning after songs. The the line coming down again, where are all my friends that, that evocative hangover kind of imagery heartbreaker, or if you want to call it, do, 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 uh, <laughs> is one of their finest hard rock songs. It closes with this great Mick Taylor wah pedal rave up. And then Angie, which is hands down my favorite stones ballad. I like it a lot more than, um, than wild horses. Um, and, and what I'll say about Angie too, is it's not a three chord special. Like a lot of, uh, the slower ballad songs are like, you can't always get what you want. It's, it's three chords. This is, I think uh, it's a little bit more innovative. They're using every key or every chord in the key. I think, um, it's just gorgeous. And then we have, to me, one of the great mysteries in all of music, which is why Silver Train gets so little attention to this day. Uh, It picks up where On Down the Line leaves off as kind of a showcase for Mick Taylor's slide, but it ratchets up the country feel a little bit. It feels to me like something the Marshall Tucker Band could have done in 1973. And I say that complimentarily. Hide Your love is one of those blues numbers that they knock off in their sleep. It kind of re- reminds me of Parachute Woman. And then you've got Winter, which is a great druggy ballad. It's, it's kind of like a poor man's moonlight mile, all the way down to the strings at the end. The only song on the, on the disc that I really don't care for is Star Star. Uh, it dips into that Chuck, Par- Chuck Berry playbook, uh, but not that effectively this time. It's sort of like it's lazy. Play- it's plug-and-play Chuck Berry, and if it weren't for the F-bombs in the chorus, the song would largely be forgotten. They would, they, 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 would, there,
1: there are funny lines in it. There are funny lines in it where like, yeah. he's well, like, I ain't mad at you for giving the head to Steve McQueen. Right. <laughs> and, and they had to clear that with Steve McQueen before <laughs> they, they published it, and Steve McQueen was like, yeah, I'm okay with that. Uh, it, 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 you know, you're a, you're a star-effer 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 star. You know, it's... it's it's almost like them trying to court controversy. Right. It reminds me of the, the later, the mid seventies, the Love You Live era, mm, yeah. where they're like, Mick Jagger's literally riding on a giant inflatable penis, yeah. you know, trying to like be like, "Oh, look at us! Look at how daring and uh, you know transgressive we are!" But nobody cared anymore, man. You know, you know, it, remi- it There's this there's this great article from the Onion. Um, w- w- uh, from like 1998, where w- they talk about Marilyn Manson this, and Marilyn Manson is now going door to door trying to shock people <laughs> because like nobody 's shocked anymore like it's like yes we 've heard it all before we 've heard it all already, and it just seems so lazy. It just seems so tired I-, I hate that song. That song to me sounds like the sound of surrender. Yeah!
0: I don't think Jeff mentioned my favorite song on Goat Said Soup. And by the way, I think, uh, to, to just kind of say how far down from a 10, it's probably a 5 or a 6, I guess. I, it, 100 years ago is the best thing on this album. Uh, I don't think it's really close. Um, Billy Preston playing that clavinet. I'm thinking of starting a new corollary. The, the, uh, the, the, the I pres- agree with you, by the, the, the Preston Cooter rule. If you have Billy Preston or Ray Cooter playing on your track, Chances are it's going to be extremely good. Uh, 100 years ago passes that test. Uh, Mick Taylor's got a nice solo, little rock funk track here with 100 Years Ago. Uh, that breakdown, uh, you know, the Call Me Lazy Bones part. The way it goes from there into that quick clavinet, and then Charlie and, and Mick Taylor's solo toward, toward the end. Uh, 100 years ago, I think, is the best thing here.
3: walking through the world, day, Can't you see the buzz?
0: Mr. D, I don't mind too much. I think Charlie's drum track here, the way they kind of gallop and clip-clop through Dancing with Mr. D, helps it out a bit. But this is the start of, and and they would get better, but it's uh, what I would call like like barely a song, right? Um, It's an excuse for a Keith riff and the band to play, and that's not always a bad thing, but I don't think it was as good as it could be with Dancing with Mr. D. Uh, I like Angie, Pretty well. The one thing about Angie is, man, Nicky Hopkins on piano just steals that song. Inspired, inspired playing from Nicky Hopkins on, uh, on on Angie. The way he weaves his his line through the guitars. The thing with Hopkins too is, largely, when he plays, he's not playing a repeated motif. He's playing something different, almost exclusively throughout the the course of the song. And that's true with with Angie. What a great, great song. But clearly. Uh, This is a step down from exile. The end of, uh, again, Rock's greatest winning streak.
2: I also have to say this is a huge step down in the cover art department. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, hey, I, hey, Mick, take this
0: pair of pantyhose
2: and stretch them over your face, and we'll take or, a-, or, as a...
1: as a friend of mine said, why does Keith Richards look like a poop stain <laughs> on the back of the cover?
3: Because he does. It's just, it's, I don't know
2: what they I were going know what for. They're didn't doing to me, there. But they didn't get there, whatever it was. The thing about Goatheads, you
1: know... Uh, angie is that one of those songs that i know i'm supposed to hate you know uh, but i don't i can't i can't hate it i can't hate it for the same reasons that that scott talked about you know Nikki hopkins piano on it is beautiful keith says that he he wrote it while he was literally sitting on the toilet um, (laughs) which is a way of perhaps sort of trying to downplay the you know know, the, the sweet balladry of it but it's a it's a beautiful song. I, I I I want to dislike it, but I cannot. Oh,
3: you don't, you All your still taste sweet. I hate that.
1: Something like a heartbreaker. No, no, I, I know, Jeff, you said it was a do, 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 but the, the, the proper way to pronounce that is do, do, do,
3: do, 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 do.
1: It's those nagging backing
2: vocals. And he did exactly eight times. Eight, I can tell you for a fact. Because <laughs> I have the, to count them. I, 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 the thing about it is that
1: you. You listen to stuff that was coming around the same time as Heartbreaker, like uh, "Living for the City" by Stevie Wonder, which is obviously a much more real and powerful and gritty, you know, uh, understanding of like yeah, you know, problems in, in urban life, you know. And then you listen to this sort of like you know, phantasmagoria horrorscape of uh, in New York City, you know, the police shot some poor kid chasing them through the park, and yeah, I don't know, you know, in a case of mistaken identity and all that and it's it's uh lyrically it does not live up to the Power of the backing track. But again, that backing track kind of gives rise to some of the, there are myths that are told about exile that we all now celebrate, and we're like, oh, that's awesome. Keith Richards, you know, badass. You know, he's, he's, he's injecting heroin straight into his head, but he's dervishing forth with all these great songs. You know, on Heartbreaker, the story goes is that he he spent like a half hour trying to overdub uh, a guitar solo onto Heartbreaker, <laughs> but nobody told him that he he because he was so high, he didn't realize he was playing a bass guitar instead of a guitar, <laughs> an actual guitar. Because you know he he removes a string from his guitars these days, and uh, that just says everything you need to know about the decline between exile and, and Goats Head Soup, and also it in a real and important way that it has to be emphasized for the rest of the Stones' seventies up until Sun Girls, the way that Keith is going to become a passenger. Um, this is something he doesn't talk about. You know, there's a lot of myth making. You know, Keith wrote his biography, a really entertaining autobiography, by the way. In life, uh, the out the the book Life. You should you read it. It's really good. It's really fun, but you shouldn't trust it <laughs> because he 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 kind of omits uh, or edits or uh, excuses away uh, the ways in which that he was not there present. As the partner to Mick Jagger uh, on these mid seventies albums, and which leads you to its only rock and roll, which is you know uh, you thought goat's Head Soup was sort of like what what happened, what happened after exile, and then you understand when you listen to its only rock and roll, which is them just like literally uh drowning in the middle of an ocean, treading water furiously, fighting for their lives, trying to keep their heads above the water. And there's no greater... Uh, example of that than the title track which is not a rolling stones song <laughs> at all <laughs> it was written by a guy who uh, curiously enough would end up going on to become a member of the rolling stones ronnie wood uh, mick jagger uh, they uh you know they recorded goat's head soup they didn't they toured it the tour was actually really excellent and uh, then they recorded it's only rock and roll and you know Mick is just sort of they start the sessions there's not a lot of good material hanging around, so what are they going to do? He goes to a jam session with David Bowie and Ron Wood and a, you know a bunch of other you know uh, luminaries from the United Kingdom rock music sing and they uh you come up with this song and a couple others, and then Mick literally at the end of the night you know it's like 6 a.m. And he strikes a deal with Ron Wood. He's like, okay, give me this song. I'll give you that other song. The other song that Mick gave to Ron was something called I Can Feel the Fire, which went on to his solo album. It's a good song. And uh, he, he said, like, you know, let's just do this. And I, obviously set the scene, set the stage for him to later join the band. Um, it's Only Rock and Roll is a good song. It's not bad. It's over lengthy. It has all the hallmarks of a superstar rock jam session that you can sort of get from its sounds. And it, it sort of gives the game away uh, from where the Stones were in this doldrum period of their mid-70s. Hey, my- That song or this album? Uh, let's start it there.
0: I think the song's all right. Like you said, it's good. It's not great. A little long. And again, it's the the, the, the basic track is is not the Stones. It's uh, it's the Faces. You know, Charlie's not on there, and uh, Ron Wood is, of course, who'd later be a Rolling Stone. To me, it's only rock and roll's about three three songs. Um, if you can't rock me, time waits for no one, and fingerprint file. Everything else is just kind of taking up space. Uh, but those are three in my mind excellent songs um if you can't rock me those first eight seconds with uh, charlie's intro keith's riff and mick taylor's licks uh, i could listen to that on eight seconds on repeat all day long fantastic um you get to the solo part you have those kind of spastic keith riffs that lead into uh to mick taylor's solo just smoking solo uh if you can't rock me is a great lead-off track to the album and um one I would have loved, loved, loved to have seen live uh, a couple of weeks ago, months ago at uh, at the Stone Show. But it does kick off the album, I think, in a very nice way. The last one I will uh, I'll, I'll leave for, for perhaps Jeff to talk about, um, but time waits for no one. I, I got to uh, mention, this was one I pointed out earlier when we talked about the genius of Mick Taylor this is one that he definitely feels he deserves a co-write on in fact says that Mick Jagger promised him he would get a co-write on it was not until someone called him and saw the printed album uh, sleeve and said hey mate you know you're not a co-writer yeah. uh, time waits for no one and uh, Mick Taylor did not feel good about that now, now why did Mick Taylor leave the stones uh, very soon uh, we'll get to the, get into that in a second uh, drugs one he, he thought he might die which i mean frankly uh, he probably might have. <laughs> probably might have. Uh, but, but not getting co-writes on some of these songs he felt he, he justifiably deserved. is another reason. And I, it's nowhere more clear than Time Waits for No One. This is a Mick Taylor song. Um, you, can, you can hear it from, from start to finish. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think Mick, being the, the, the smart business guy who kind of had his head on his shoulders here, knew the consequences of, of making a song Jagger-Taylor and not Jagger Richards. And what that would mean to the already disintegrating relationship between the two, it meant a bit of fatal blow. And so do you want to, uh, you know, to to annoy Mick Taylor by not giving him a co-write on Time Waits for No One? Or do you want to completely drive away your longtime friend and songwriting partner and the core of the band? Well, he chose going with a default Jagger Richards song writing credit on Time Waits for No One. Now, the song itself starts with Charlie on this, this tick-tock kind of pattern on his drums, uh, feeding into the theme, Time Waits for No One. Mick kind of sings this with the, with almost a Caribbean island accent. He would kind of do more of this, th- these, these character voices, almost, uh, through the years. And there's this wonderful kind of mystic feel to it. Uh, and toward the end, you get three-plus minutes of Mick Taylor's soul-stirring solo. One take, live, in the studio. Again, this is a, very much a Mick Taylor, Nicky Hopkins song. The way that they play with each other and off of each other, Time Waits for No One, six and a half plus minutes. It ends with Taylor's solo sort of fading out and Charlie's picking up that TikTok pattern again on the drum kit. Man, do I love Time Waits for No One. It is, uh, for me, far and away, the highlight of its only rock and roll. It's-
2: I think you've said all there is to say about that is kind of Laurel Canyon meets London sound and probably Mick Taylor's last great solo with the band. Um, To dwell on Fingerprint File a little bit more, it's one of their first great funk rave-ups, and I think it's probably Keith's first use of of the phase pedal ever. Mm -hmm. Um, It gets a little political, uh, 30 years ahead of its time maybe in taking on the surveillance state. And if I can even back up to Heartbreaker, uh, I know you guys are familiar with the Brussels show from 73. In Heartbreaker, they break down in the middle into this huge funk jam for two or three minutes. Uh, It almost sounds like a Curtis Mayfield Superfly kind of thing. That to me is there's a direct line from that into what Fingerprint File would become.
3: I don't know. Way better lay low.
2: It's, it's obvious to me, finally, it, it, with this record. If there's some debate from Goathead Soup, there's no debate now. The golden era is, is, is over. Uh, Jimmy Miller's gone. They're mostly self-producing. And I think the rule for the albums going forward now is that they're, they've they gotten a little over, all over the place stylistically, as I, as I alluded to before, uh, and quality-wise. Uh, they certainly start listening to reggae. They sound like they're listening to Nile Rodgers and Chic. And that, some of that influence is coming in. Um, it's just a, a confounding album in that it doesn't really cohere the way their earlier albums did. Um, the Temptations cover is unnecessary, as, but we'll talk a lot more about that with some girls. <laughs> um, the title track, is, as, as we've said, is, is, is good, not great. Luxury is one of their first stabs at reggae uh, complete with Mick affecting his Jamaican accent which I think it does not work at all it's it's embarrassing maybe not quite as embarrassing as short and curlys but it's
1: really hard <laughs> to <laughs> imagine Mick Jagger it's really hard to imagine Mick working for the company <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> uh, 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 yeah
1: that, that 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 ain't that ain't, that ain't Mick Jagger uh, international rock star in any
2: way right and i think keith is actually hanging out in jamaica at this at this stage by now isn't he he, well, he literally
1: it, moved there yeah. and, and not permanently but well, uh, the only country uh, they would have him sure uh, yeah but it, the idea is that he was going to wean himself off of heroin by getting uh, addicted to marijuana perfect. guess what it didn't work
2: yeah um but this is it's certainly the weakest album of theirs uh, to date really since they since their debut. And
1: the thing about it, it's only rock and roll. I mean, you guys have it basically said everything. I, I will say this, that I, I think that ain't too proud to beg. I like, I like it. It's not great. It's not better than the Temptations original version, but it's an okay cover. Uh, I think the first half of the album is pretty well sequenced. If you could just take off, uh, you know, if you will, if you really want to be my friend, Uh, That's uh, the first moment when I listen to the Rolling Stones and I think, oh, no, this is just generic garbage. This isn't even really very like, uh," or no, it's, you know what? I realized that's on the second side. It's still the next goodbye. It's on the Mm -hmm. first side, which tells you something that you you can consider these songs interchangeable. This is where they start to bore me. The first half of that album is pretty well sequenced. You start with, if you can't rock me, good song, ain't too proud to beg, decent cover goes straight into it's only rock and roll. And then till the next goodbye, that's a mistake. Okay, fine. We'll let it go. Ends that first half ends with time, which for no one, which Scott and I both agree on is the best song on this record. And, uh, then the second half of this album, up until Fingerprint File, is appallingly generic. I don't mind it when the Stones try and fail. There are songs on a goat's head Soup" that fail. Like When uh, you hear the music, which is like them trying to do like their satanic majesty's request over again in 1973, 72, no, it didn't work but they made an attempt to do something different and then you hear stuff like dance little sister and it's just like four and a half minutes of generic rock crap this would become a problem ironically enough i don't think until later on after some girls Mm -hmm. uh, it's where they fall into patterns and that's my problem with it's only rock and roll and uh the thing is is that a lot of people a lot of people will say the same thing about their next album uh, and i'm going to vehemently disagree with them uh, black and blue is 1976 they took forever to record this album the story behind it is as fraught as let it bleed or their satanic majesties they started recording it in late 1974 after day one of the sessions mick taylor walks up at a party to mick jagger who happens of all things to be talking with ron wood and says hey you know what uh, i gotta quit the band i'm leaving i'm done i'm gone bye 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 i'm done i'm finished and he leaves he walks out of the party <laughs> and mick doesn't even understand what it is he's just heard and he turns to ronnie and he says what the, f- what the hell just happened and-, and ronnie famously says like i think he was serious mate <laughs> <laughs> and uh, mick left Mick left them. And, uh, you know, as, as Scott said, I think the real reason he quit is probably, it's not the songwriting credits. He probably never felt like he was truly integrated into the heart of the band. But I think it was more about the drugs and the life and the feeling that, like, I'm, I'm just not going to live if I can continue writing on this merry-go-round. So, what do they do? they need a new guitarist. They need a a new second guitarist, someone to bounce off of Keith Richards. And they audition uh, basically the who's who of the awesome, primarily United Kingdom uh, guitar scene. Everyone from Jeff Beck, whose outtakes still remain unfairly unheard, uh, to uh, Harvey uh, uh, Wayne Perkins and and Ron Wood comes in and does some stuff and what do they do? They say they don't have an answer so they say screw it we gotta go on tour we finally got a permit to tour in the United States they go in 1975 who is the one they pick? They pick Ron Wood he seems like he gets along with Keith pretty well
2: Well, so yeah, Don't forget Eric Clapton Yeah Clapton but and yeah there's he- a- there's can you, a, you imagine Clapton
1: and the Stones? <laughs> you no, know, there's a
2: great story. I think it might be apocryphal, but nevertheless, when they were both auditioning, Clapton apparently told Ronnie at the time, I'm a better guitar player than you, to which Ronnie replied, yeah, but you can't live with these guys. I can. <laughs> and that was the, that was the yeah. end of it. And you know what?
1: You know, Ronnie could, but he also became a depraved chunky as well. Yeah. So I'm, that's what living that's with the Stones is it. if you're <laughs> hanging out with Keith. Uh the end result is an album called Black and Blue that finally comes out in 1976 this is an album that went to number one in the United States, it's a number one hit album Um, but if there is any way to claim that any of these number one albums during the Stones mid-70s commercial like blockbuster era are underrated I would claim that it is this I love this record and they don't nobody talks about it they don't play any of the songs from it anymore really and maybe you fool to cry or memory motel will come out every now and then uh this one was reviled by the critics who didn't seem to understand that the stones are supposed to keep up on trends and play you know like new african-american black music and you know trendy music i think that black and blue is a fantastic record And practically nobody else agrees with me except for Scott, who I want to hear chime in and support me on my lone stand.
0: I love Black and Blue, and um, I I don't think I love it ironically. I mean, I I love it as an album. Uh, I can't remember. Black and Blue is one of the final additions I made to my Rolling Stones collection, uh, you know, purchase. And um, I don't remember what set me off to of do it. It may have just been, hey, I don't I don't have this yet. I might as well finish the collection. But uh, it's one of those ones, I mean, if you love the Stones and, and you love their groove, I don't know why you would not like Black and Blue. Um, you, you have Harvey Mandel, Wayne Perkins, and Ron Wood playing at different times on different songs on the album. You have two songs that don't get writing credits but inspired by credits hey Negrita with Ron Wood and melody from Billy Preston which was really just a Preston song the Stones you know glommed onto uh, it's around this time where Keith looks back and says, "You know, our problem around this time was we let our, the sidemen men take over. We'd have a great Stone song, and then you know, this, one of the side guys would would do his thing and, and change it. And I'm like, well, what sorry, you, Keith, why? that was
1: your saving grace.
0: You weren't you weren't <laughs> conscious. I don't know what to tell you, Keith. Uh, we had to somehow move forward. But look, right from the top, hot stuff. This is another one." And a continuing line of, again, barely a song, Stone's songs that I love. I love hot stuff. Uh, Harvey Mandel's on the guitar here. It's just a groove. I mean, there really are no lyrics either until mixed vamping at the end. But that disco funk groove, it slams. And, uh, you know, Charlie Watts, brilliant. So much of it is in in the wrist. It's in the hands. With Black and Blue, uh, you start to hear how huge his bass drum can sound and can play in the proceedings, the role it plays. And it's true on, on Hot Stuff right on the opening track. Hot stuff.
3: Get up!
0: Hand of Fate, Hand of Fate. If not Monkey Man, Hand of Fate is the most overlooked great Rolling Stones track out there. Hand of Fate smokes. It is outstanding. This, the lyrics about this, this Southern murder, right? I uh, had to save a life. I gunned him twice. It has this unbelievable momentum to it throughout the entire song. Get to the very end. Too late, baby. It's too late now. Charlie kicks up the rhythm. He is wailing on the hi-hat toward the, uh, toward the very end of the song. It is just a great song. Wayne Perkins has a smoking solo on Hand of Fate. Perkins would later say, before he even played a note for the Stones, Perkins said they, they put a spotlight on him in a room and sized him up to see if he looked like a Rolling Stone should. Um, Perkins could play, man. And one of my favorite alternate Rolling Stones histories is if the Stones end up choosing Wayne Perkins instead of Ron Wood to play in the Stones. Perkins had a great solo on Hand of Fate. He plays on Memory Motel. He plays on Fool to Cry. He would play... Well, he played now and then it would be brought back later on uh, Tattoo You track or two. Worried about you. Worried about you, which is just fantastic. Um, But... Going forward, forward with Perkins instead of Wood, i don't I, I kind of play that out in my mind. I think they may have been a more interesting band, but they had some girls next, so who's to say how that changes? I think Perkins would have been a great fit. I really, really do. But at the same time, Ron Wood, you know, moving ourselves forward a bit in the, in, in the, in the conversation, keeps this band together at so many turns. And uh, he, he fit in so well with with Keith. And he was like family. So I don't know if they if they survive the ups and downs if, if, you know, Perkins is the guy. It's probably better off that Wood was. It's not as if they were a crap band with Ron Wood in it. But I like to think about what might have happened if wayne perkins would have been the choice uh but yeah black and blue man great album and 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 the two the two ballads which i'll i'll leave perhaps uh jeff to discuss memory motel and fool to cry are just great memory motel seven plus minutes it's almost a duet with keith's uh you know she got a mind of her own and she use it well
2: it's it's one of keith's great backing vocal performances yeah. most, most iconic yeah uh what i keep going back to is i think their choice in drugs tends to overlap with their choice in guitar players. You know, with the Brian <laughs> Jones era you had the LSD and pot and then with Mick Taylor you had the smack and now getting into Ronnie you get into the cocaine period, which makes sense cuz they're hanging out at Studio 54 and they're becoming kind of a New York band and they're integrating some some more uh, funk and reggae sounds and disco sounds into their into their sound. But this to me overall feels like you might bleep this out, but it feels like their 1970s rock rock record things that, uh, that, you know, fog hat might do. Uh, and I, so I don't have the same opinion of this, that you guys do. I think it's lesser than goat's head soup. I think it's a lot better than I lo- than, uh than it's only rock and roll. However, um, I think the opener is a little underwhelming. Um, you've got not one, but two reggae tracks. Uh, Cherry O is another humiliating put on, although I think Hayne Grita does work better because it integrates some of those reggae elements into their own sound. And it's a, it's a part of the track. It's not the whole track. Um, I just don't know what to say about melody. Um, uh, it sounds like the stones are, are covering a Rosemary Clooney song. It it's, It just makes no sense whatsoever.
1: You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like Mick Jagger is chewing a juicy morsel of steak (laughs) around his (laughs) mouth. And he is loving. He is loving all those inflections. And the same thing goes for Keith. Keith is finding these voicings on his guitar that he has never played. And he's just going jazzy and you know in funk and i uh, yeah it, melody it, for those who don't know it's a billy preston song and of course again like hey negrita which is a ron Woods song they stole the credits time waits for no one basically a mick taylor song stole the credits this is the jagger richards ethos but on that song um I love the way Mick sings it because he just has this, this genre de vive. He just loves getting those words out of his mouth. And I, I, I get it. Uh, people was like, they played it, by the way. They played it live, you know, briefly at least in 1977. Um, I get why people say, like, yeah, no, that doesn't sound stonesy enough to me. But I like the Rolling Stones when they take those left turns. They're they're accomplished enough as players and accomplished enough as singers and performers that they can pull it off. And so I really like that song. That's the one that when you say, like, I really like black and blue, and they're like, what about melody? I'm like, for you, melody is great.
3: I like came home one morning, about quarter to two I'm banging on my door, cause I just lost my hand Oh, but nothing you got someone else inside I'm gonna come get your bed or life
2: So, yeah. Joke, I haven't gotta- talked much about Fool to Cry. It's one of the first songs, I think, where Jagger really uses the falsetto to great effect. Um, he hadn't broken that out a lot, and he's going to break it out a lot on, on some girls and some of the subsequent albums. He uses it really, really well. <laughs>
3: Friends say to me sometimes I make a laugh I don't understand. You know what I said? Uh
2: and I completely agree with Scott about hand of fate. Uh it's another one where I don't know why that song never became one of their classic rock radio staples. I mean, hand of fate by itself is better than bad company's entire career. <laughs> and it never gets played. it's It's bizarre. You have to go to like a Sirius XM deep tracks to ever hear that on the radio.
0: And uh, black and blue, as Jeff said, went to number one. There was a bit of a controversial ad campaign billboard campaign. Uh, the woman tied up. I was left blue by the uh, black and blue by the Rolling Stones. so they they got their controversy out of it, too. Um, and uh, so that that brings us to um to some girls, um, which is... let's
1: pause. let's just pause for a second <laughs> because we need to understand what happens before some girls. So, the Rolling Stones go on tour. They're doing their, uh, you know, big follow-up to get your yaya's out. All sorts of rights issues have prevented them from releasing a live album uh, up until this point. Now they're finally free to do so. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Mick Mick is gone, and they're auditioning a new guitarist. They they maybe passed their sell-by dates on some of their classic tunes. Like you can't always get what you want, and uh, they. they do their 1975 1976 shows and they realize ah you know what this is this is gonna suck and so what they what they realize is that yeah we gotta book some shows we gotta book some shows uh in a in a small club uh what they choose is elmo cambo uh, in toronto uh famous small club elvis elvis costello recorded a pretty famous live record there and um the only problem is that Keith Richards decided that, hey, you know, we're going to be going to the Elmo Combo. We're going to be going to Toronto for – we're going to record several shows. it be about a week there. So let's bring an entire continent's worth of heroin <laughs> with us. Her. And of course – Of freaking course, (laughs) the police found it when they passed through customs, and because the police are not stupid, they uh, they checked it and they let them through, and then they waited four days to bust them through Keith Richards into jail. Keith Richards was booked, not just by the way I might point out on. Uh, drug abuse or you know you know, ownership of drugs, but on drug trafficking, <laughs> they booked him for being like uh you know you know a, a mule a metean Colombian yeah. drug trafficker he was Pablo Escobar to them and uh he uh this is bad this is the moment where the rolling stones yeah you, know, you thought the 1967 drug busts were bad enough this is the moment where they they could have literally fallen apart because like you know who knew what the canadians were going to do right um and he he literally had like seven mason jars full of 100% pure heroin i can't even imagine like you couldn't hand that out to people on the streets and get rid of it enough to use that much of it. (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, This is the moment where Keith was, A, thrown into jail, forced to to detox. Uh, It's also the source of one of the great modern – lights on life which is love you live the terrible rolling stones live album that we won't talk about ironically enough the only good part of it is the 1977 toronto el mocambo side um but what happened is that mick jagger who was trying to like help keith out through this horrible situation moved to new york city he moved to new york He's living with him there. Uh, and Keith is doing rehab. I don't know if it's up in Vermont or up in Canada. I can't. I don't even know what it is. He got off uh, all sorts of technicalities. Uh, the rich just get different rewards and different treatment by the justice system than the poor. It's cruel. But uh, at, at least at this point, I'm thrilled that it happened because what happened is that Mick spending time in New York City and having to deal with Keith's problems and having to also deal with something that simultaneously happened, which is the punk explosion uh, created Some Girls, an album which is a reaction, a rejection, a rejuvenation. You could characterize it in so many different ways. Uh, This is the album that, that, that people commonly cite as this is where the Stones were reborn, this is where the Stones came back, this is where the Stones were finally great again after Exile. I don't know if I'd agree with that because I think Black and Blue is a pretty great record, but this is some girls. This is New York City, North America, the modern punk scene, the disco scene, all simultaneously happening at the same time. This is a record that I think still holds up to this day.
2: it's still all over the place. Like a lot of the other records I talked about, but here it does work a little bit better. And that's in no small part because the songs are just better. Um, There's early rock, there's funk, there's disco, there's post-punk, there's blue eyed soul. Of course there's, there's country. I don't want to talk about every song on the record because I'll, I'll leave some, some meat left for Scott, but there's a couple I'd like to focus on. Um, When the whip comes down, one of my favorite stones tracks, which is not actually a song about congressional leadership, uh, but it but it is a song apparently about a trash collector who moonlights as a male prostitute. Um, when people talk about the stones bounce, that little lag between Keith's rhythm guitar yeah. and Charlie's yeah. drumming, this song is what they is what they mean. This is the song I point people to when we talk about it. How Keith jumps the gun a little bit on the downbeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, not exactly an upbeat, but he anticipates the downbeat by a fraction of a second uh, ahead of Charlie. That's really hard to capture, and this song really, really brings that to the forefront. Yeah. <laughs> Faraway Eyes, um, I'm torn on it. I, I like it. We've played it live. That chorus is just tremendous. I mean, uh, Conway Twitty wishes he wrote a country chorus <laughs> that good. Um, but it really does walk the line between homage and parody. And it doesn't always walk that line straight and true. It's, uh, it's one step up from a novelty song.
1: Well, listen, uh, you and I have both run Red Lights for Jesus.
0: Oh, <laughs> of course, Of course.
1: I I love for for me the only part of that song that I really truly like
2: is that opening monologue. Mm. Yeah, you don't like the chorus? I think the chorus is tremendous. If you took out the (laughs) spoken word stuff,
1: okay. We'll get maybe you'll get to this later. But there's so much other great country stuff they recorded during these sessions.
2: Yes, I mean, is it it time to do bonus tracks now? Are we going to pause on that?
1: Yeah, you go for it. You know, just literally listen. We'll we'll work it all in. Go. I mean,
2: I mean. you can't talk about some girls without talking about the bonus tracks and the reissue and whether the album could have a even been better or b released as a completely, uh, as an additional album. <clears throat> Claudine, no spare parts. Do you think I really care? Which is a country song about New York of all things. Tallahassee Lassie, uh, there's the B-side. Everything is turning to gold. These are great, great tracks and why they sat on them this long is, is, is anybody's guess. Um, a- as, I, as I said in our emails before, um, you, you could have uh, substituted any one of them for just my imagination <laughs> and, and had a better record. Jeff, Go.
1: A Please I, I, no, no, no. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. We're going to eject you from the show <laughs> because uh, here's, the, here's the big fight point. As we discovered, uh, as we talked about this on our pre-show. Uh, everybody else on the podcast here hates the Rolling Stones cover of The Temptations, Just My Imagination. I think it's the best thing they've ever done in terms of covers. I literally think that um, – <clears throat> They did another Temptations cover in Ain't Too Proud to Beg, and it sounded like a cover of a Temptation song. What I love about Just My Imagination is how they entirely recast it, and they turn it into a song that sounds like a Rolling Stone song that the Temptations first got to. And then the Rolling Stones later did their version of it. Uh, The Stones do a a post punk influence. It's very new wave. It it glides along upon this groove. And uh, I just think it's so wonderful. It's one of their finest songs from the later era of the Stones. And it will maybe make my top five at the end of the show. And I know you guys don't like it, so screw you.
0: It's a, it's a, it's a bad cover. Uh, <laughs> some girls, I, I I mean, some girls is a very very good album. I do not like it as much as as some do. Uh, Miss you is not my favorite Stones discoish track that will come on the on the next album. Um, the, the like lies and respectable, where it is about fast 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 breakneck speed, kind of that that punk answer. I never am quite sure how I feel about those tracks on this album. I want. Sometimes we, we gloss over the, the big songs because people have heard them and they know them so well. So I, I want to take just a moment and talk about the, 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 the big singles from Some Girls. You get through Some Girls and it's Miss You and Faraway Eyes and Lies and Respectable. All the way to the end and you get to two essentially flawless songs to close out Some Girls. First, Beast of Burden. Beast of Burden is one of those, like, people just kind of, I don't know, maybe I'm talking for myself, forget how good it is or kind of push it off to the side like oh yeah it's beast of burden listen to it again listen to it again beast of burden is a monster of a song it contains in my mind the the platonic ideal of how keith's and and Ron Wood's uh guitars are able to interweave and play with each other it is the ideal of how that should work Inside the Rolling Stones, Chris Kimsey, we should mention, engineering and, and mixer for for Some Girls, does a lot on this album. You know, mix vocals for so long uh, in, in the Stones canon are are way down in the mix. It's the old blues thing. They are just the vocals are just another instrument. They're as loud as the drums or the guitar. But Kimsey lifts them up, especially on Beast of Burton. I mean, Mick is front and center on Beast of Burton. It helps the song, right? You you have um, you have those harmony vocals, hard enough and rough enough and rich enough. Uh, Keith playing that slapback echo on on the guitar. Beast of Burden's a monster tune, and then you close with Shattered. Oh, I Shattered is so good. I never tire of hearing Shattered. That punk funk rhythm to it. Uh, one of the first times I listened to it with headphones on is when I realized that they've got that pedal steel working under the guitar solo and shattered. I love that so much. The hand claps that uh, that come up during the beginning of that, uh, that solo part as well. Is there a better set of lyrics ever written about New York City than pride and joy and greed and sex? That's what makes our town the best. Pride and joy and dirty dreams and still surviving on the street. That's New York City. That that's what Nuke is. He finding. talks about Schmata.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean they're the, the, like you gotta be living in the garment district to understand that reference. That's Can't give term. it away on Seventh Avenue. Yeah. No, that's- exactly. Don't you
3: know The crime rates go <laughs>
1: Point out, Scott, that um, no woman I've ever known on the planet has been able to resist Beast of Burden. Hmm. They'll claim they don't like it. They'll claim they're <laughs> only into hip hop or modern music or Miley Cyrus or Taylor Swift or this, that, or the other thing. And then you put on Beast of Burden, and you are "Ain't a rough enough, ain't a hard enough," and you know they're just
2: like, "Yeah, bopping." And there's simply no way in hell that prince wasn't influenced by beast of burden. Of course not. I mean, who couldn't help but be influenced
1: by it's a beautiful song it's the ancient art of guitar weaving.
0: So good. I mean, it's so so good. Um that's uh th- that's what I've got on some girls. Do you want to move on to emotional rescue? Yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. Let's so, do it. So this is uh Some Girls is 78. It's a huge smash. Uh Miss You goes to number 1 of on the charts. Um, and uh, the, the follow-up in 1980, so two years after that, is is emotional rescue. Um, this is a not well thought of album in the Stones canon. Um, to me, it's 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 decent. Um, it's decent. Um, this is where after Some Girls is kind of this over the top success of Mick and Keith, at least in some ways, working together again that uh, that relationship again starts to fray here on emotional rescue. Mick pulls back a bit from investing himself in some songs. Keith thinks mick is getting and getting in his way mick is uh, or keith is acquiescing on some some points to sort of make sure that the band continues uh, keith thought mick listened to crap music and wanted to bring that crap into the rolling Stones. that's essentially what 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 happens during some of this era uh and, and with keith kind of reasserting himself and, and, you know, back from the dead so to speak or back from his drugged out haze and, and sort of wanting that equal partnership again mick isn't sure he kind of wants to give that up um being being the the leader the, the man directing the rolling stones and in all of that comes comes emotional rescue i i told you that miss you is not my favorite uh, stones disco track uh, dance part 1 which is the first track on emotional rescue i uh, i think it's better than than miss you um that that riff which is it's a ron wood riff that drives dance part 1 it is impossible to remove from your brain and i blame what, it was Jay Cost Jay and, and then Jane Kost and both of them talked a, a week or two ago about how much they love dance part part one and since then i have not gone a day without listening to dance part one cannot (laughs) get it out of my head uh and that 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 opening patter of mick kind of just barely off mic uh you know what do you hey keith what what, what you what you doing uh get up get out get into something new you're standing on the corner of west 8th street and 6th avenue uh dance part one is just great great
1: Sorry, Scott. I gotta tell you that you're, you're garbage. You're a garbage person with garbage opinions because <laughs> Dance Part Two is actually
0: the superior song. <laughs> dance Part Two is very Dance good,
1: but- Part Two only released as a B-side, uh, and you can find it on Sucking in the '70s. If I were a dancer, Dance Part Two, the horns That's even better than Dance Part
0: One. The horns are better, but it doesn't have Mick asking Keith what he's doing, which brings a smile to my face every time I hear it. I so know, I have, to, I know. I have to But yes, I completely
1: bit. agree with you about the groove. It's just a fantastic song.
0: Nobody grooves like the Rolling Stones when, when they get into it. When, when you talk about hot stuff, again, I, Dancing with Mr. D is kind of in this area. Dance Part One, uh, maybe talk about Slave in, in a minute. Those are, the, again, they're barely songs. They're just excuses for this riff and this band to work, to operate, and nobody grooves like the Rolling Stones and it's so much to do with the rhythm section too with Charlie Watson and Bill Wyman and Dance Part 1 is right there. Uh, All About You is a great song at Emotional Rescue. It's R&B ballad. uh, It's a Keith song. It's the last song on the album, I think. Um, Either aimed at Mick or aimed at, at, at Anita depending on how you want to read the lyrics and maybe both. But you know, sick and tired of hanging out with dogs. Sick and tired of hanging out with jerks. It's a very raw, emotional track. Uh, I I think it's maybe the best. Well, dance part one, yeah. But but all about you just sounds so good. It's just it's just mixed very very well. Album. The rest of it, there's a lot of, uh, I think, take it or leave it tracks. Uh, send, send it to me, Let Me Go is kind of generic, uh, Indian Girl, uh, and then you get, like, Where the Boys Go, which is kind of a lies rewrite, Summer Romance, which is kind of a respectable rewrite. There's a little bit of recycling happening, and not in the in the best way of what would happen next with Tattoo You. Um, Emotion to Rescue feels a bit like a retread to me on, on many levels.
1: Yeah, there's, there are too many songs, for sure, that sound like stuff that was already on some girls. It's funny that you said that Summer Romance uh, found, sounds like a, a rewrite of Respectable. It sounds like, to me at least, a rewrite of Lies. Which it was my least favorite song. Some girls.
2: To uh, me, it sounds like a Tom Petty song. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, you know, I'm
1: a fam, Tom Petty
2: fan. By I, the way, against uh, Tom Petty, just in the same way that "Where the Boys Go" to me sounds like a Clash song.
1: That, but you, that's the thing. That's why this is not a bad album. It's no. just not a great one. And you can see, like, uh, it's far too clear where, like, yeah, yeah, they're taking nicks off of other people. It's not. The pioneering, uh, we're one step ahead of the game kind of a thing that you hear on some girls, or even on Black and Blue for that matter. I, I I gotta say, one thing I will I will really stand up for is the title track. I think Emotional Rescue, that title song, where Mick is just singing, you know, I'll be your lover, straight and true. <laughs> I come to your emotional rescue. I mean, <laughs> It's ridiculous. And yet, you know, as I think he himself said, it's like, why do you have a problem with this? Prince put out three straight albums where all he did was sing in falsetto. <laughs> and you guys have a problem with us doing it? Of course they did because the Rolling Stones are the Rolling Stones. They've been around since 1963 and they're very white. But I think it's a good song. I really think it holds up.
0: That's, and That's it's the Stone like, song for me. You mentioned, I can't remember which one you said. You don't want to like it, but you do for me. He gets emotional rescue. I, I don't yeah. want to love emotional rescue, but I do. It's so I icy, it's, and cold. It, it, it,
1: it worms its way into your brain. <laughs>
2: I think that's the key to this whole record is it doesn't really sound that much like The Stones per se. But if you can go into it, if you can divorce it from your preconceptions of what The Stones should sound like, it's a pretty good record.
1: I mean, here's the funny thing. We talk about albums that sound like outtakes, right? Well, uh, what happens when The Stones actually release a new album that really is just an album of out? Takes, and that is tattoo you. This is the one that basically, kind of, for most people, marks the end of the classic Stones era. It's the uh, you know the last number one that they had, and for many, 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 many years until the point where getting a number one on the Billboard charts didn't mean anything anymore. And uh, it, this is the one that they they had a tour coming. They had to put a <laughs> tour together, so they were like, "crap, we need product to sell." <laughs> so that what they did is they got. Created It's Chris Kimsey to go back with Mick Jagger and look through all the vaults and uh, dig in the archives and find all of their best cast off songs. And they put together an album that is shockingly amazingly good. It begins with Start Me Up, their last number one hit single. It ends with Waiting on a Friend, which you know, Andy, I'm sure you like. It has Worried About You, has Hang Fire, Black Limousine, Neighbors. This is an album comprised almost entirely of stuff that was thrown off as not being worthy of released on earlier albums, but, uh, I love it. I love it I love it to death, and I just don't understand why people uh, treat it as a secondary record in their career. I think it's
2: like maybe the last coherent expression of their classic phase.: Yes I, I think I personally for too long dismissed this record because of the opening track because I've heard it so many times at so many sporting events. It's one of those songs that you just never ever need to hear again. Um, But then you go deeper than that, and it's so good. Uh, Slave is just this great jammy groove. Again, it's got just enough reggae influence to keep it fresh, but not so much that it overwhelms things. It goes on for, what, six or seven minutes, and I kind of wish it went on for 12 minutes. is a great blues album track a deep cut it's the kind of blues that they that they do in their sleep again uh, but it also shows off mixed chops on the harps you t- uh, you talk about uh, earlier I know you talked about Brian Jones on the harp but I remember in his book Keith raves about mixed harp playing and this this proves that what a good harp player he is Um Little TNA is another standout Keith song, um, and it kind of is a template for the kind of Keith songs that would be on every record from here on out. Just a chugging open G riff, and he can knock out two or three of those on every record, and they're all listenable. They're all solid. You can you can take it to the bank that that's going to be on every album. Um, Mick, I, I will say, Mick really keeps the band going from a business and publicity standpoint throughout the 80s, but given all his experimentation stylistically it's really that Keith comes back to the fold and he kind of keeps the musical soul of the band going when all this other craziness is going on he'll still do a rockabilly tune he'll still do a Chuck Berry influence tune and kind of keeps the whole band rooted
0: absolutely I, I don't know if it's a hot take or not I, I suppose it is I did a long tweet storm about this like two years ago Tattoo You is better is a better album than, than Some Girls in in my mind. I, I think Tattoo You is fantastic, and, and, and to have it pieced together from black and blue outtakes and Some Girls extras and all these songs Chris Kimsey found they had to because Mick and Keith weren't talking. They couldn't they couldn't produce anything. They even fought about the name of the album. Keith insists insists it was supposed supposed to be called Tattoo, and he blames Mick for adding the U. Uh, the second word on the album title. But yeah, Start Me Up and Waiting on a Friend book, end this album. Everybody knows those from start to finish. Uh, uh, Jeff mentioned Slave, which yes, it could be 12, it could be 18 minutes. I want more Slave. Uh, little TNA, my, one of my favorite parts on the album is two uh, two two and a half minutes in, that little breakdown when everything drops out except for Charlie's drums and he sort of switches the, the, the beat the rhythm a bit and it's just Charlie and Keith for about 15 seconds that's my favorite part of little TNA um, and what if I told you the best black and blue ballad isn't actually on black and blue it's true worried about worried you. about you yeah yes is better than I mean fool to cry and, and uh and uh and, memory rotel memory rotel are both great worried about you is better I desperately wanted to hear Worried About You at the Stone Show from this year, and I knew they weren't going to play it, and they didn't, of course. But Worried About You is absolutely fantastic. The first song on the second side, the slower ballad side. Uh, It's a tour de force for Jagger, starting in that falsetto. And as the song goes on, the band kicks in. Uh, The the passion from the late verses, the, Yeah, I'm a hard-working man. the way he slides in for that final verse Wayne Perkins with the solo on Worried About You just kills it Uh, Worried About You is probably my favorite track on on Tattooed here Catches that that snap, that bounce of Charlie's snare better than, than anything else. And again, credit to, to Chris Kimsey for pulling out these tracks. Mick had to go back and put lyrics on virtually everything here. Recorded it out in Los Angeles. Uh, there's even a Mick Taylor track, Tops, where you hear Mick Taylor play. Heaven is the spacey, atmospheric song. No Keith involved. It's just Mick Jagger strumming on his guitar. It's an emotional rescue outtake. like that one quite a bit as well. I don't know uh, if you guys are with me, uh, maybe not. But again, I I think Tattoo You is a superior album to some girls. It is one of the Stones albums I go back to most often to hear again and again.
1: I think, you know, I don't know if I would agree that it's more... If if it's a greater record than some girls, because some girls has sort of those iconic singles, if it's got Beast of Burden, it's got Miss You, it's got it's Respectable. But what, what Tattoo You has is perfect quality control, which comes from plumbing your archives and doing vicious quality control. There, the, the, that, that song that you just mentioned, Heaven? Where um, it it's this weird, it sounds it sounds very uh, you know post punk world beatish almost. There's no real lyrics. It's like a great change of pace. It's exactly the kind of change of pace that they would have wanted to manufacture for an album recording session, but they couldn't. But they had one of them in the vaults. And so they just threw it right on there. And thank God, Chris Kimsey kept great diaries to do that. Uh, Waiting on a Friend. That was the other one, by the way. Tops and Waiting on a Friend. Both of them are Mick Taylor era songs. They're from Goat's Head Soup. This is a record this is they released a record of outtakes uh, in 1975 they did uh, Alan Klein did it for them uh, called metamorphosis. It's just almost entirely garbage. the first half is just basically... Andrew Oldham demos and you don't want to hear how badly like random studio players sound playing those songs. And then the uh, second half is some sort of beggar's banquet, let it bleed era, sticky fingers era stuff. It's not that great. Uh, this is the outtakes album, the Rolling Stones ever and always deserved and it was a number one hit album and uh i just think that i'm surprised at how maybe this is down to the mix maybe bob clear mountain gets a lot of credit for making all these songs sound as if they are of a piece but this man this album holds up this album is uh i think the best possible tribute you can pay to it is to go back to what uh uh bill wyman and uh um Stu eden stewart would say about it who were always the most critical of the stones discography and said so this is the only album that they can remember in recent memory where there wasn't a single bad song on it and they played almost every single song on this album live because they're all good and it was just it was a miracle frankly (laughs) and maybe maybe the last miracle before everything falls apart for the stones which comes to undercover uh 1983 the stones do a a big triumphant tour to tour tattoo you and um yeah a lot of good you know there's an official live release still life sucks terrible terrible and there's some some good uh recent archival releases that are better uh from the same tour but it's all still the same sort of mick jagger in a stadium barking at the top of his lungs kind of thing <laughs> wearing
2: football pants
1: yeah, yeah yeah like like hey i'm pretending to be a minnesota twins fan today
2: yay boo you know,
1: it's weird doesn't work and um then you get to undercover. Nineteen eighty three and this is the moment where things change. This is the moment where a lot of people say like the stones began to suck. I don't think it happens here. I think it, it it's the real dip the real bottom level it comes on the next album but undercover is a weird record i don't really know what you guys have to say about it i think that the political themes the lyrical themes that mick works into these are actually good i like undercover of the i really love the video where keith where keith like yes. shoots mick in the face yeah <laughs> uh, which he, I'm sure he'd been waiting to do for several years now, um, but it's a Miami Vice styled thing, isn't it? N- yes, it is. It, it, it's sort of South American, yeah. you know, America yeah. regime thing. Uh, th- the only real song that I hold on to from Undercover is Too Much Blood, which is, is it's a is fascinating too, track.
0: It, it's oh, it's just it's, it's it's
1: too much long. I grant you that, but I like it. Yeah, like it.
0: took it to his apartment,
3: cut up a head. Put the rest of her body in the refrigerator And a piece by piece Put her in the refrigerator Put her in the freezer And when her ate her Took her bones to the Bois de Boulogne By chance The taxi driver noticed him Burying the bones you can't, believe you can't believe me Truth is stranger than fiction He drives there every night What a day
0: I actually got to tell you, I, I of the of the '80s output of Undercover, Dirty Work, Steel Wheels i like undercover the best um now it's it's an odd album it's an unusual album to listen to it is very much kind of kind of aggressive and and raw and kind of violent and it's all over the lyrics just the song the, to- the song titles too tough tie you up too much blood it must be hell all these things and and part of it is again the mick keith relationship they had uh they were signing a deal with CBS for for the new albums, and uh, unbeknownst to the rest of the band, Mick had done this side deal, which, in essence, said if the you know if the Stones aren't putting out albums, you have to promote my albums, the Mick's Mick solo albums, as much as you would a, a Stones album. And nobody else in the band knew he did this agreement. Uh, it sort of frayed some relations, which uh, which led to bad blood on undercover and, and dirty work, especially. But, uh, you know, the title track, which you guys mentioned, I, I think is-, is pretty good. Uh, the rubbery bass line, very processed drums. It's kind of taking a chance and in- succeeding. I think Undercover works pretty well. you up, Pain of Love, Uh, Too Tough good tracks Uh, again as Jeff mentioned, Too Much Blood is just this fascinating, listen, a very busy arrangement with these horn stabs Uh, These these very graphic lyrics about a murder in France and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and burying body parts all over the countryside. It's all in too much blood. It really is. Um, And that it must be held. The album closer, very echoey of Soul Survivor. same the same kind of riff to close out Undercover. There are missteps here. There is no doubt about it. Uh, 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 There's a Ron Wood track that's that's decent. But uh, of the three 80s albums, guys, I actually like Undercover the best.
2: Well, you, you're damning it with faint praise then. (laughs) Um, I I don't have a whole lot to add except to say, I can't believe Charlie ever let them do that to his drum sound, even though it was the eighties. Um, and then I think it's, it's interesting again, just for the Mick and Keith dynamic, uh, especially when they weren't getting along, he's writing these overproduced pop songs and Keith is still churning out these open G tuning rockers and the songs alternate for most of the album. Um, at the time, yeah, I guess a rockabilly rave up like Want to Hold You was kind of out of fashion, <laughs> but now you look back at it, and posterity certainly favors Keith. Um, too Tough, It Must Be Hell. Those songs have aged a lot better than mm-hmm. the songs that Mick brought to the table.
1: Now, here you talk about uh, why did Charlie let them do that to his drum sounds. Well, the reason uh, probably was because Charlie was getting addicted to heroin and i gotta i gotta ask you listen you are a member of the rolling stones you are a founding member of the rolling stones what kind of do you have to be to get addicted to heroin after keith richards went through everything <laughs> that he did in the early 1970s oh i thought
2: you were gonna ask what the hell took you
1: this long well i'm just like my lord yeah this story and you know a joke about it but it's sad you know his marriage is falling apart he turned to drinking and alcohol and then drug use charlie always one of the most reliable members of this band you know along with mick and bill there were the guys who like stayed sane and sober except for bill occasionally going off to marry a 13 year old <laughs> um you know he He's falling into um, you know, non-functionality. And that is a huge part of uh, where that weirdness comes on Undercover and then particularly on Dirty Work. Yeah. Dirty Work. Dirty Work produced by one of, oh, this pains me to say, one of my favorite producers of all time, Steve Lillywhite. Steve Lillywhite, who did XTC, who did Peter Gabriel, who did the, you know, the Psychedelic Furs, who did so many great, great post-punk bands and then he finally gets his chance to produce the rolling stones and this is this is the lemon that he births <laughs> <laughs> this is a terrible but we should spend 60 seconds on it i uh, robert chris gave it an a uh but beyond that nobody has anything good to say about dirty work does anyone want to really defend a harlem shuffle or uh um i don't know uh winning ugly or i don't know maybe one hit to the body one hit to the body By the way, that's the irony of Dirty Work is that uh, Ron Wood, because everyone else was hating on one another, like Mick and Keith aren't talking, Uh, and uh, Charlie is is strung out. And so Ron Wood just brings a bunch of his songs, and he gets more writing credits on this record than he ever will again. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, they're all fairly decent songs, but they're produced abominably. So, you know, I, was, I give me your your thumbnail summary of the least essential Shut album up. of the Stones' career.
3: Oh, no.
2: I think the '80s and '90s output to me is interesting. I I, I don't want to spend too much time on the individual albums because I don't think they're worth it. Um, but the '80s and '90s output is interesting to me as a as a stepping off point for for two discussions. Number one, if Keith's Talk Is Cheap album was released as a Stones record, would it be their best post 1981? I say yes. And number two. If the band had broken up in '81 or even earlier, would their legacy be that much greater? Especially vis-a-vis the Beatles. Um, I, I think the Beatles somewhat benefited after calling it quits after 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 only a decade, and not uh, and avoiding some of those late career nader albums that brought down the Stones' batting average, uh, like Steel Wheels and like Dirty Work. Uh, What do you guys think about that? I'm that guy who unironically likes steel wheels, so (laughs) I would disagree. So, Scott? Although they did... the other night in Philadelphia, only two days ago, they played Slipping Away from Steel yep. Wheels, which I think is the only high point on the album. But props to them that they're still playing a
0: cutoff of it. And they've been doing sad, sad, sad on this tour, too. Yes, uh, that's right. From Steel Wheels. I
1: should try Almost Hear Your Sigh or Blinded by Love. I mean, actually, here's the thing. I, I, Steel Wheels, they finally patched it up. They both went off and had their solo careers. Keith's went better critically at least than mix Uh, mix went disastrously comically. So it's almost like the comeuppance that he deserved. Um, They finally patch it up, get back together, realize, as uh, Jeff said, right at the beginning of the show, the brand is more important than anything else. Um, they put out Steel Wheels. Steel Wheels has sort of kind of become the watchword for the first corporate rock album uh, with a corporate rock you know, tour to support it. Um, everyone kind of liked it at the time and hailed it as the return of the Stones, and now everybody makes fun of it. I like that album. I think it's a good record. I I, I really like some of the songs on it, particularly on the second half. He
3: was blind.
1: I don't know about you guys. I I think that the the latter era of the Stones' career, which involves Steel Wheels, Voodoo Lounge, Bridges to Babylon, and I guess a bigger bang, is far better than people give it credit for. Because at this point, we're always just supposed to think of them as like mercenaries. They're in it for the money, they're in it for the $200 tickets, they're in it for the corporate logos and, you know, sponsorships, but the actual work itself is... In weird ways, in in weird cameos, it really does hold up better than you would expect.
0: Yep. And and to Jeff second question. I think it was the second question. <laughs> Whether or not they, if they quit after Tattoo You, if they'd be thought of differently. I don't, I don't really think so, actually. You know, by that point, you have the entire decade of the 70s, which by and large, people would say is a mixed bag album to album. That's always going to weigh them down, so to speak, in the critical eye. And then again, outside of dirty work, which I think is uh, universally thought of as being a, a pretty big disaster, there are defenders of steel wheels like Jeff. And, uh, and, 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 the, and the albums past then I think people are just, you know, gracious that there is new Rolling Stone product, and and it's hard to evaluate it uh, when you compare it to to the height of their highs in their career. But as a, you know, a bunch of 50 and 60-year-olds playing rock and roll, and, and, you know, one thing that's very clear toward this era is their ballads begin to overtake their rock song as being as being the the pillars of consistency um you know you go to like uh, well you know Mixed Emotions from Steel Wheels is actually one that I, I will definitely defend I think Mixed Emotions is is a classic stone song but make sure this it's the single mix not the album mix I think the single mix really is much better Keith's guitar is farther out front it's a rougher mix but um you know like on Voodoo Lounge You Got Me Rockin' which they're playing on this tour too You Got Me Rockin' is a I mean, it's a it's a whatever song. It really is. But some of the ballads on uh, Steel Wheels, like, like Slip It Away, some of the ballads on Voodoo Lounge and even, uh, even Bridges to Babylon, those are some very consistently strong tracks. And um, I don't know if you want to slip forward to Voodoo Lounge a bit. I think Voodoo Lounge is the best post- um, I was going to say post-undercover. I don't know if it's better than undercover. It's certainly close. Voodoo Lounge is a very strong set of songs, uh, released, uh, what, five years after Steel Wheels. Um, and, and this is a set of tracks that uh, I think is very well done. I think it's a time that Mick and Keith were getting along fairly well. But it's it's the CD era, so it's far too long. It's 15, yeah, if they could only yeah. have edited themselves. 15 tracks, 61 minutes. What I do very, very, very simply... Uh, I take out brand new car, Sweethearts together, and suck on the Jugular, which are consecutive songs, and bam! I, got, I like Sweethearts, <laughs> but yeah, I can't. I got get myself a forty-five minute album, um, but there's really good stuff. The worst is a great Keith song. I wish he would play that again on on, on the tour. You know, he has this sort of rotating group of of Keith vocals that uh, they do two per per concert. I wish they would bring back the worst.
3: Well, I said from the first, I, I I'm the worst. Heart, Including this old heart that is true and never ever let you down. Oh, you shouldn't stick.
0: Uh, Mood is Up is a fun track. I like that one quite a bit. There's a, there's a, a whole set of alternate takes floating out there. Um, I think there's a few on YouTube. I have, I have a whole disc full of, of Keith taking the lead on some of these songs. Uh, Baby Break It Down is an okay song with Mick on vocals. Keith takes vocals on Baby Break It Down, if you can find it out there. And it's a totally different feel to the baby break it down. It's a really good song. Uh Through and Through, another Keith one, uh, right toward the the end of the album is a is a really good one. Uh Voodoo Lounge is a surprisingly strong set of songs. Uh not performance, not not just performances, I should say, but songs from Jagger and Richards.
1: They they sound like they're actually Friends again. <laughs> They're recording in a studio, and they they don't hate one another. They're not being forced by the lawyers to get together in a studio and patch things up. And that's that's the the miracle of the best stuff on Voodoo Lounge. You Got Me Rocking, I think, is another one, and uh, that really kind of brings that out. I also I like the weird kind of left turns. Moon is up, out of tears. I think those are really good songs. Blinded by rainbows, that weird song that Mick Jagger decided to write about like. Like the Irish Troubles, uh, why I don't know, but it works. And you don't like sweethearts together, but I do. And I think it's it's a pretty good song. It's it's one of those weird kind of country left turns that I would have left on. It has that uh, that that actually that accordion that harkens all the way back to like Backstreet Girl from Between the Buttons. And I think it works well. Um, this is a decent album. Uh, it's. Th- too far away from being a great album simply because it's overstuffed and they didn't edit themselves. I just can't agree with you more about how the CD era in the mid 90s ruined bands. You know, this is the melancholy and the infinite sadness <laughs> syndrome, where like, oh, yeah, well, you know, so we have 80 minutes to play with. Let's throw everything we have on here. No, you prune it, you use the other stuff for B sides, or you release an EP. But if they had done that and they had edited it more be, more more i think more prudently you'd have had an album that was almost unimpeachable uh ironically enough uh they would have to wait until their next one for that one but before i get to that one uh jeff
2: do you have any thoughts on voodoo um i am almost allergic to 80s production values and this album benefits a lot by removing itself from that and going back to a little bit more organic production. This is Don was at the board, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, they also benefit from, as you mentioned, with the ballads. They bring back some of that English folk vibe that they had in the mid '60s. Mm-hmm. Out of Tears, Blinded by Rainbows, and I'll I will. People hate You Got Me Rocking. A lot of people hate it. I will defend that song to the day I die. It's a ridiculous lyric to be sure. It's it's trite, it's plug and play rock and roll, but it's a perfect illustration of the Stones special sauce. In the hands of any lesser band, that the song would be a punchline, but it's not. <laughs> the rhythmic pocket is perfect. Ronnie's leads are perfect, and they just pull it off live every time they play it. They have so much fun with it that you 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 can't help but appreciate it.
1: I it's, you know I don't understand why people dislike that song I didn't even
2: realize that people disliked that Because the lyrics are kind of ridiculous
1: <laughs> How many Stone songs have Listen I, I'm just oh, a, monkey. a monkey, all Ready? my friends are junkies Oh that's not really true I'm a cold Italian pizza, I could use a lemon Squeezer too, that's a pretty ridiculous <laughs> lyric. I was a hunter, Losing a
0: It's better, it, it's better than I Go Wild from the same album. Audrey yeah, that's a little... Yeah. We, should, we should mention Love real, quick, real the song, quickly, the too. the
2: first single is fine. It's a great yep. song.
0: Love is Strong is good. And we should also mention, you know, since he's kind of a big part of the band, Bill Wyman's gone uh, by this point. Bill Wyman uh, ends up leaving the band, I think, 1990. It was after the Steel Wheels uh, tour. Essentially,
1: 92, he, 92 is, is it. And they, they tried to convince him to come back. Yep. They, they did everything they could because... You know, I mean, he's Bill Wyman, and he's, he's a an formative member. But he was just like, nah, I'm
2: done. I'm done. Old, much older than they were. He's, what, five years older than the next oldest member? Something I don't, like you that. Know, I don't a- even
1: know if – you know, you may be right, and I don't even know if that's correct. But I just – I do sort of respect the fact that, like, you know what? I, I've made my millions – I'm going to be able to just retire to the south of France, and I'm not going to go blow it all on lottery tickets. I'll be fine.
0: <laughs> and this is where Daryl Jones comes in, a Chicago guy on on base. Essentially, the guy said, Charlie, who do you want? And they tried out 30-some bassists, and and Charlie said, this is the guy, Daryl Jones. Uh, slightly different feel, but he's been around so long, in another year or two, he can call uh, Bill Wyman a short-timer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's been that long that Daryl Jones has now been in the Rolling Stones. Isn't that
1: amazing? And by the way, this brings us to um, not the last album, the last new album of the Stones' career, but for me at least, the one that I I think is sort of like that The last album that I really want to focus on, which is Bridges to Babylon. This one came out right when I was entering college and graduating high school. Um, This is an album that very few people actually have a lot of time for. This is uh, sort of dismissed as like, oh, one of these Rolling Stones have to put out some products so they can go tour. I think this album... Listen, I, I I might even at the end of the day cite it as one of my top two albums to choose because I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to eschew the obvious ones. You, you already know Exile on Main Street. You already know some girls. If you want to find a late era Stones album that actually will impress the crap out of you. And that really does include all of their virtues and travels a gamut and still stays current. It doesn't get old or like, you know, blasé or boring. Boy, I'm so impressed by Bridges to Babylon. And I'm a little perplexed at how it was sort of treated with this lukewarm critical reaction. I love Saint of Me. I love, uh, you know, Thief in the Night. I love Out of Control. Gunface. There's so many good songs on this record. Uh, the other thing I want to point out about this is that you can just hear the difference between Keith as a singer on these later period Stones albums. You hear it on stuff like You Don't Have to Mean It. Uh, Keith used to sound like that. We, as I said, he was, sounds like a guy who sings like he's falling off a cliff constantly. <laughs> um, and, but now he has a much more assured voice, and I guess that that's a product of his, his his you know expensive winos solo touring era when he was doing Talk Is Cheap and things like that. A lot of um, cigarettes. Yeah, get with cigarettes probably helped to or hurt uh, whatever you want to call it. But uh, he sounds much more confident as a vocalist and much less like, you know, the guy who who squawks his way through. You've got the silver. I really like this album, and I don't know why other people treat it as a footnote.
2: I think this record is a is a triumph. Even if, the, even if all you took away from it was Flip the Switch and Anybody Seen My Baby. Flip the Switch, to me, is when I listen to it, I only hear Keith and Charlie, and I mean that in the best possible way. It's just Keith and Charlie holding down that rhythmic pocket as good as they've ever done. And then Anybody Seen My Baby is, is all Mick. People remember it for the Angelina Jolie video, and that's fine, but it's a solid r and song, and it's a good example of Mick... Being a little bit more modern and taking them into the 90s a little bit, but uh, without embarrassing himself. No, not, not embarrassing himself at all. It, it just it just works. It's, it's an update of their sound in the best possible sense. I was flipping
3: magazines in that place on Mercer Street when I thought I spotted her. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting on a motorbike, looking really ladylike. Didn't she just give me a wave? yeah
0: And that was on purpose, because Mick was not happy with the Voodoo Lounge production, and Don was. Because Don was, said, let's do a classic Rolling Stones album that sound like, you know, rock and roll. And Mick, uh, still kind of writing what he was doing in the, in the 80s, was listening to new music and wanted to try it. The, the, the Dust Brothers produced some tracks on Bridges to Babylon, and essentially, Mick said, this album, we're doing it my way. And, uh, and Keith said, fine, fine, fine. But this is one of those albums where everybody worked alone. Keith? ron and mick all had their own studio worked with their own producer and then eventually was all brought together so this is one of the more uh more i mean almost hearkening back to exile right one of the more piecemeal albums uh because everyone wanted to do something slightly different and maybe that's part of the the allure of it i had to go back and look i i i remembered it being more warmly received than 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 jeff is sort of mentioning it i i, I can't confirm or d- deny that but i i remember people being pretty big about it anybody see my baby did, did very well on the charts "Saying to me is a great great song um but there's a there's a good deal to like from from bridges to babylon i won't deny that
1: I mean, listen. You've got to love it when Mick Jagger sings about how you know, St. Paul, the persecutor, was a cruel and sinful man. or And then he talks, Augustine, New Temptation. Anyway, he pronounces it the British way. I always thought it was Augustine. But he says, Augustine, New Temptation. He loved women, wine and song, and all the spe- special pleasures of doing something wrong. But he's like, yeah, you know what? These guys are all saints. That you're never going to make a saint of me. That is a great song that is a modern day stones classic it proves they still had it thing about this, though, is that it, it, they, they, they fill in the nooks and the crannies in a way. It's not just about the big hits. Uh, there's this weird kind of keyboard-based thing called Might As Well Get Juiced that I really like. I really like Out of Control. Which is, uh, sounds like it's a Mick Jagger thing. I, I don't know if it is. I, I haven't done the research, but it sounds like it's all Mick. And then it, like it ends with three straight Keith songs, all of which are great. There's the Too Tight, and then there's a Thief in the Night, and then there's the last one that's called How Can I Stop, which is, almost sounds like a confession. It's so yeah, Keith say like, "I, how can I stop? I can't stop doing this. This is this is who I am. This is what I am compelled to be. I, 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 I still to this day that they put out a bigger bang, which I'm not not a huge fan of. Um, but I feel like this is the last Great Stones record.
0: Agreed. I don't know if it's the last Great Stones song, though, because I, I do want to mention off yeah. of Gurr, he created Grr. hits back. No, are
1: you sure? Or is it
0: 40 Licks? Uh, well, 40 Licks has a good song, um, but don't stop, right? But on Gurr right. is Doom and Gloom, which yeah, I think is good. an outstanding Rolling Stones song. That one makes me uh, eager uh, for new material which of course may never happen but uh, Doom and Gloom's essentially a uh, a mixed song he wrote the riff he wrote almost the whole thing and of course the guys come in and do overdubs, etc but uh, Doom and Gloom has this great beat to it great rhythm to it Charlie of course holds down the, the back end well and there's space for everyone to work there's Keith in the mix you hear ronnie uh, in the mix as well and then uh, you know pretty decent set of lyrics from from mick on on doom and gloom um that i don't recall that making a giant splash i mean it's new stones material so people are gonna seek it out and hear it but i really dig doom and gloom that's a great song
2: they did it live on that tour and it worked pretty well It up. I don't want to sleep on Blue and Lonesome. Um, the blues records are usually where legacy classic rock artists go when they're out of ideas. Either that or an album where every song has a guest star. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Peter Frampton. Well, like, no just, security where, where uh, Dave Matthews is singing on yeah. Memory Motel. Right. Yeah, uh, Peter Frampton just did both of those things. A blues album with guest stars. <laughs> um, and yet this material is just so far in their wheelhouse. this Nothing but Chicago blues. That it feels way more vital than it otherwise should. I mean, these are just great, great takes on on some of these, and these aren't mostly. These are not really well known songs. This, these are um, Chicago deep cuts, basically. Uh, People, I think, are only maybe familiar with um, "Commit a Crime." the I Can't Quit You Baby is probably the I one Can't that Quit You be- Baby, of course, the but a song like Little Rain, uh, Ride Him On Down, the, the title track, Blue and Lonesome, these are really phenomenal takes with them all just mostly sitting in a room and, and jamming together. I'm glad I'm glad that you mentioned that because, yeah, it's not new original material,
1: but it it kind of goes back to what they proved when they did those Elmo Cambo sessions in Toronto on the Love You Live thing um, that, you know, whenever the Stones decided to just go back and play the blues these guys knew how to play the blues they were raised in the blues this is like Bane from the Batman it's like you think you were uh, you think you you have adopted the darkness (laughs) I was born in it the stones were born in the blues that's what they came up from that was what they were born to evangelize that was what they were born to do so you hear them go back and you listen to this stuff it's like yeah they're 70 something years old all of them they're old men but that in fact for a peculiar reason, that almost makes when you're singing the blues that much more effective because the blues is an old man, and that was the irony, right, of course. Right. The Stones is like 20 somethings, and you know, teenagers playing these songs be so like, hilarious when they were young because they really appreciate it. Well, as they're 70 somethings, man, they kill it, they absolutely kill it on Blue and Lonesome,
0: and that will bring us to the end of our Rolling Stones episode of Political Beats. And this is the time of the show when we all get together and uh, hand you out some awards two albums that you must hear from the from the past 50 years <laughs> and somehow five songs <laughs>
1: good luck buddy
0: <laughs> that you should uh, you should hear two songs or two albums you should own five songs you should hear from the past 50 years of the rolling stones uh, there were many choices here <laughs> we turn it over to our guest first he's editor in chief of national journal at nationaljournal.com on twitter at dc defor jeff defor your two albums your five songs please
2: Well, the albums are going to be chalk and nothing but chalk. Uh, Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street, two of the great albums in the rock and roll canon, much less the Rolling Stones canon. So I apologize for my lack of creativity on that front. Uh, My top five songs, Can't You Hear Me Knockin' for the Reasons That We've Said, the um, the apotheosis of Keith's Open G riffing, followed by uh, the Stones as a jam band, I'm going to go with All Down the Line from Exile on Main Street because I think it's the best showcase for Mick Taylor's slide guitar, and I'm a sucker for slide guitar. I'm going to go with Angie off of Goat's Head Soup because it's my favorite Stones ballad. Uh, It's it's soulful, it's emotional, and the whole thing just works for me. Speaking of ballads, I'm going to go, as I think Scott may as well, with Time Waits for No One. Um, probably my favorite single late '70s Stones track, um, and one of my favorite Mick Taylor solos again. And then I'm going to go with uh, "When the Whip Comes Down," which uh, is a is a hard. Shugging song that probably encapsulates the new york period of the stones as well as anything um, and if you'll give me a couple honorable mentions i would go with flip the switch and, and out of tears from their uh shall we call it their coda period of uh of the 90s and the aughts
0: all right uh my two albums uh exile on main street it is, of course, as good as the uh, the hype. It truly, truly is. And uh, for the second album, I'll go a bit off the board, I guess. And yes, 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 uh, Black and Blue. I mean, really, if you haven't heard Black and Blue, if you don't know what it's about, give it a try. Uh, that's uh, the two albums, X Island, Black and Blue. The songs, again, how do you pick five songs from 50 years? Do my best. Uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking from Sticky Fingers is on this list, as Jeff uh, uh, went through. Uh, From Exile, the song I I, I take from Exile is Torn and Frayed. Uh, Time Waits for No One, yes, another repeat from uh, It's Only Rock and Roll. What What a magnificent performance from Mick Taylor. From Black and Blue, Hand of Fate. Is here and then again the best ballad not on black and blue, and one of the best stone songs of the past fifty years, bar none worried about you from tattoo you, man, do I love worried about you, uh Jeff, to you,
1: I just assume that anybody who has suffered through. Two episodes of a Rolling Stones deep dive podcast has already heard Sticky Fingers and Exile on Main Street and Some Girls. So I'm not going to recommend any of those two albums, because for God's sakes, if you don't like those albums, if you haven't heard those (laughs) albums what are you doing here? I mean, did you just wander in here by accident? I was, did, you, did you pick the wrong door or something like that? Okay. You know those. So Let me pick two others that I think are almost as essential because you know the great hits. I'm going to go with Black and Blue, as Scott already mentioned. I think it's perhaps their most underrated album. Uh, They don't like it that much these days. Everybody thinks of it as a Stones, Doldrums era album. I don't think there's a weak track on it. Even the goofy, half-assed reggae cover uh, (laughs) where Mick Jagger is... Completely failing to sound like anything Jamaican that he could ever hope to appropriate. <laughs> um, the second one that I will choose is "Bridges to Babylon," which is a very late period Stones album. This sort of, I think, I don't know of at this point. You know, if maybe they're gonna surprise me with something new next year i doubt it but i think this will be the last great album of original material that the rolling stones record i think it's hugely underrated i think at this point they were just treating a lot of critics and sort of maybe even the masses were treating the stones as a a live proposition and the new studio material is just stuff product to be consumed uh, you know Gerber baby food I think this is a much better album than that it deserves far more than that I think it's actually excellent I think that they had released it after exile on main street instead of goat's head soup then people would be hailing it as one of their great achievements as for my five songs uh i'm going to again try to avoid the stuff that everyone else has said i'm going to start with two songs from exile on main street Uh, the first one is going to be shine a light Uh, it's a, a mixed tribute to brian jones Um, who did did not get along with him, and uh, they had a really difficult relationship. Uh, But the ultimate result is sort of maybe the greatest achievement of the Stones' gospel, folk, soul, roots, era, and uh, just a, a true piece of honest soul from a band that always tried to hold themselves at a greater remove second one would be happy also from exile on main street as i said you know you know keith richards couldn't quite sing back then but when he woke up from his junk, sick, dope, <laughs> addled sleep and figured out that he had a riff and got the other guys to play horns and play drums, he came up with something like this, which is instantly iconic. One of the most fantastic songs of the Stones career. Third one I'll mention is an, is one that we did not discuss when we talked about uh, Some Girls, which is another Keith song. It's Before They Make Me Run. This was actually written with, Keith, with uh, Mick. Uh, people don't realize that they think of it because keith sings the lead vocals on it they think it's just his it's actually a co-write uh but this is him writing about his uh, legal troubles you know gotta move while it's still fun gotta walk before they make me run and it's just a fantastic nagging lyric that comes back and back and a back again on that chorus and it's uh It sort of to me represents the triumph of some girls which is a triumph of a band over its own worst instincts and its own sort of learned bad habits they had to relearn how to get along with one another again and how to collaborate again um uh fourth song is saint of me a song from bridges to babylon just yeah i already talked about very witty literate lyric very beautiful production great rocking group proving that these guys may have been 60 boy now they're 70 now i guess i guess in the 90s they were only in their mid 50s <laughs> um they were they were practically dewy young young men at that point uh, but i love saint of me and then the one i want to conclude with is um I already said on our last episode that You Can't Always Get What You Want is probably the greatest Rolling Stones song ever. Um, it, it probably is, but if there's anything that actually competes with it, it's Moonlight Mile. Um, when Moonlight Mile ends with that, that beautiful Mick Taylor solo and those beautiful you know echoing guitar chords with the strings playing in the background as it finally resolves to the major triad, you, you feel wonder, which is something that the stones don't normally evoke in you when you listen to them. You feel genuine wonder. You feel like you are lost underneath the stars. You are lost in a vast, unknown and unknowable world. Uh, it's a beautiful moment and something that the stones never really attempt to try to go back to. Uh, In their later years, which is a shame, but I'm almost grateful for it because I don't think they could have ever really improved upon that.
0: the political beats look at the 57 year career of the rolling stones and still going strong today we thank our guests for the second part of the rolling stones episode here jeff defour editor in chief of national journal find him at nationaljournal.com and at at dc defour d-u-f-o-u-r on twitter jeff thanks so much for joining us
2: oh guys thanks very much it was my pleasure
0: Blast. Jeff, another uh, multi part episode down.
1: Summer is spectacular, and it's the time is right for. podcasting in the streets.
0: <laughs> find Jeff on Twitter at Esoteric CD. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Subscribe to our feed, please. New episodes, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in, or you can go right to nationalreview.com and find old episodes there too. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews. You can find the show on Twitter at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.